I'm Fathery. This is Dave. And this is Text Trek. Engage. Welcome back aboard the Starship Texas for the 224th installment of the Text Trek podcast, the home of Star Trek fandom from deep in the heart of Texas, where we take a deep look at Star Trek old and new, and tonight we're talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine Season 6, the first nine episodes of Season 6 specifically. That's everything from A Time to Stand all the way up to Statistical Probabilities. So uh, those of you that have checked out our DS9 content before, you know the way this works. Uh, those who haven't, uh, Dave is watching all these episodes for the first time. So he, he's a, a seasoned Star Trek viewer, has watched a lot of Trek. Uh, DS9 is the one when we started he had watched the least of, and now he's made it all the way, it, a third of the way into season six. These are all fresh fresh experiences for him. I'm watching it for the 47th time. So uh, <laughs> this is all stuff I've been thinking about for, for decades. So we're coming at it from, from two very, uh, very different perspectives, but uh, it makes for a very, very fun conversation. You know, Father, I've been panicking about these uh, last few seasons. I'm worried they're going to drop the ball, just like I do any anything that I like. Right, right. You were talking <laughs> about that recently when we were discussing Prodigy Season 1, how, you you know, when you get towards, like, season finales and stuff, you tend to get a little nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but Deep Space Nine has a pretty good track record for that for me, so um, uh, less less nervous overall. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Uh, and uh, I actually consider you know the the batch of episodes we'll talk about next week uh, even uh, even better than the the stuff we're talking about now. But I really like the stuff we're talking about now. So I'll, I'll be curious uh, what 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 you like and dislike and and anything in between on these. So uh, be sure to let everyone know. I want to say it was hard for me making my notes on these, Father, because I'm I'm used to sort of the I got back used to the full notes on Prodigy and stuff like that, and uh, so I made probably more right. detailed notes than I should. So I'm going to do my best to stay on the schedule and knock these out pretty quick tonight, so we can go episode to episode. Yeah, well, but it was we'll tough. probably s- spend like you know the first hour or so talking about like that that big six episode arc, and then we'll have like some more to talk about after that. But yeah, these each of these episodes kind of uh, well, I think there's two that kind of like really or, or one long story but they just to discuss that stuff it's all like so linear uh we'll, we'll get into that in a moment let me knock out some real fast housekeeping because we, mm-hmm. we do have a lot to talk about but uh just want to give a thank you shout out to our patrons that's uh starfleet boy kick is eternal gay clevin lundstrom crazy dutchy joanne robertson quarks bar john dawes sci-fi haven and our anonymous supporters so thank each and every one of you uh so so uh very much and uh a geek filter uh this i've made this uh document a while back so it was before he had signed up but uh thank you as well uh just want to remind everyone we'll be doing our uh patreon watch party in the discord server in uh, a few days on january 14th so be sure to check that out we're talking about ship in the bottle the second moriarty episode getting ready for his return in star trek picard and if anyone wants to uh, participate in that you can join the text trek patreon 
also just go check out the discord we uh we have some fun conversations in there and that's open to, to the public so uh please check it out links to all of that in the description wherever you are watching or listening to this and uh yeah without without further ado uh dave do you want to just let's just go ahead and dive right into season six episode one a time to stand written by iris mm-hmm. Stephen bear and hans beimler directed by alan croker let's give the the synopsis here real quick that is, with the Dominion on track to winning the war against the Federation, Sisko and his crew take a captured Jem'Hadar ship into enemy territory with a mission to cut off the Jem'Hadar's supply of Ketracel White in the Alpha Quadrant. So, pick it up where we left off at the end of Season 5 with uh, the Dominion in control of the station, the Defiant crew forced to fight this war. Dave, I'll just let you start things off uh, you know what was what was your kind of general impression of, of actually you know getting getting deep and, and dirty into the 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 bloody dominion war you know what's the tough thing for me when i was making notes about this was that i feel like so much happens in any given episode there's lots and lots of big subplots going on you know in this one there's what was it the rotaran joins the cisco's fleet uh Worf and jedzia are reunited um uh, the Jem'Hadar ship, like you said, uh, uh, that they captured uh, last season uh, is mm-hmm. uh, is put into action. The Bajorans start returning to DS9. Wayun and Dukat are battling behind the scenes. So we've got intrigue among the uh, the villains of the show. And, you know, like everybody has something going on. Even Quark is, is, is trying to um, see the silver lining that the Dominion occupation now is better than the Cardassian occupation before. Like, it's just a lot of stuff. But. Uh, it's a great season opener. <laughs> like, uh, just from that opening pan of the uh, sort of ragtag fleet, uh, maybe a little... I, I forget what Ron Moore's involvement in this particular episode was, but it sure looked like the Galactica fleet. Well, you know, um, the, the the fun thing about like that, that opening image of all the defeated ships returning? Because, mm-hmm. you know, season five, if you don't remember, season five ended with the Defiant, you know, getting kicked out of DS9 and the Rotaran getting kicked out of DS9. And then there's like that massive... A fleet and and you know nog is like uh, we're gonna make the dominion sorry they ever set foot in the alpha quadrant cisco's like and or, cadet you took the words right out of my mouth and you're like oh man starfleet is ready to kick ass then uh, season six opens like oh wow they're they've just for three months they've just been defeated well we're gonna be like reminded over the course of the whole like the, of, the, of all of these episodes we watched uh so nine so far of to to, to report in on it comes up again and again that the Odds are super against the Federation and its allies. And and this is just like the very first black eye to remind you of it. It's it's a show that doesn't like you to, to, to rest on its laurels. And it doesn't like you to feel complacent. And makes it kind of hard. Like, it has its big victory scenes. It's not without them. But it's uh, they're kind of few and far between. Was it those, uh, those moments on uh, Galactica when the whole crew would applaud and cheer? That doesn't happen too often. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're they're well earned, you know, when we get to those big and, and there is a big victory and it takes us six episodes to get to it. Yeah. But you know, a small character interaction actually kind of sums up a whole lot of stuff. So Garrick and Bashir are talking and Bashir is kind of as they're starting to really acknowledge his genetic enhancement. He says there's only a 32.7 uh, chance of Federation victory. And uh, Garrick kind of looking frustrated at like this side of him says he's like you're not genetically engineered, you're a Vulcan. And Bashir, kind of trying to play it off, says, uh, if I'm a Vulcan, then how do you explain my boyish smile? And then Garrick says, not so boyish anymore, Doctor. And that's kind of feels <laughs> like where we are, like we've had to kind of grow up, even, yeah. you know, smart-ass woman chasing Bashir. I'm sure the Garrick and Bashir shippers out there, which there there are plenty, I, I think they 
they also really enjoy that that moment, that <laughs> conversation for different reasons. But no doubt, no doubt, <laughs> uh, the chemistry is undeniable. Yeah, it's true. Oh, uh, what one one other thing I wanted to mention about like that that opening shot of that uh, fleet that we see, you know, being towed back to the starbase. Uh, those were uh, all models. Those are all practical models. It was kind of like the last time in Star Trek we see like a big fleet of practical models. I, I've been wondering because, you know, obviously there's some big fleet stuff later. And right. I was like, it, there's just no way all those ships are models. But honestly, it's like some super good CG to come. Like it looked, yeah. it had the quality I expect of models, the physicality. Not not to, not to beat up on Babylon 5. It's, it's a great show. It's the only non-Star Trek property we've ever discussed in detail on uh, the text track youtube channel it didn't make it to the podcast right. but it was on youtube if you want to go find it but you know babylon 5 had to do cg in the 90s because they couldn't afford to build models uh right. trek being you know this big popular franchise they they were afforded the the luxury of being able to wait until the cgi got uh what i would consider you know like acceptable for the standards sure. of, of star trek and uh but but yeah sure. this is kind of like you're kind of like seeing like the practical models have gotten beat up and now and then like the cg is about to take over in full force well i guess i, I wish cg took over in full force like that the way for everything <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah not not always not always a, a great uh option to go the cg route but uh ds9 season six does some cool stuff with it uh we, we also had the introduction of admiral ross in this episode which would dave i guess you you you've probably heard me talk about him before because I, I bring him up a lot you know whenever we're talking mm -hmm. about like admiral vance on discovery or sure. uh say uh admiral uh, april on strange new worlds he, he's kind of the the prototype of that that recurring admiral who's not an asshole mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I will say I don't have like strong impressions at this stage. I think you you having seen this 47 times, it's kind of like when somebody like Wayun or um oh, who is it? Damar would sort of start to take a little bit more of center stage. And to me, I'm just like, oh, a few more lines for a supporting character. That's interesting. Um and and you know that they're destined to kind of like play these bigger roles and you've seen it all play out. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, I, I kind of like uh I I don't have strong thoughts on him. Yeah. Uh, well, you'll see more of them throughout season 6 and 7. Non-bad morals is a good thing, though. That's, <laughs> I can always get behind it. We want to uh, be able to believe the, the Federation is a uh, force for good and improvement yeah. and progressive stuff, not that they're going to always be bad bosses like we have fucking today. <laughs> give, it, give us some, some good morals. Yes. But we'll talk about Damar in a moment when we switch gears to the stuff on the station. We should talk about like the, the Cisco Defiant and the, the Jim Hadar ship stuff first. But sure. That's one of the things with Damar is I remember telling you like way back in the season four, like, I know he doesn't look like much. He's just like a guy on the, the bird of prey with Dukat who just says like, yes, sir, whenever Dukat gives an order. But I promise you he's going to become an important character someday. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you know that it, one of the highest compliments I have for the whole show is how organic it all feels. And that feels like the way things happen in real life. Uh, sometimes, you know, if you're looking at, you know, whether it's history or modern modern happenings. Uh, you can never quite predict who's going to come to the fore in making, you know, uh, in changing history. And yeah, sometimes it's that second in command who, through circumstances, becomes disgruntled, overly ambitious, all of that stuff. So I, I have I've very much enjoyed watching Damar in this uh, sixth season. Uh, what do you think of the conversation between Cisco and, and his dad, Joseph, when, when Joseph is just like, uh, why isn't there just enough space for everyone? Well, you certainly know how to comfort a frightened old man. <laughs> you didn't raise me to be a liar. I raised you to be a chef for all the good it did me. <laughs> um, the, the pretty well, good I loved it, and you know, you know that when he's talking to his dad, he's going to drop his defenses and say say some real shit. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, like it's it's a great scene, but it also really emphasized to me. I'm like, man, it's bad. <laughs> it's you, terrible. You see how how fatigued Cisco is. This the scene prior to that when. when He's hanging out with Martok on the def- Martok's like, "Where's your doctor? I need I need a Starfleet doctor for my arm." And then w- Bashir gives Cisco the news. Oh, the Seventh Fleet, who we thought were going to be like the saviors of the Alpha Quadrant. Yeah, it turns out they yeah. just only fourteen ships made it back out of the hundred and twelve we sent. So yeah. you, you really see like the the weariness on all. They feel like they've been at war for three months. Right. Well, you know, Babylon Five would also show sort of extended uh, warfare over over time, but it, it is not an easy thing to, to show. You know, I think you know almost all shows, especially in that era before the, the modern serial format was really taking hold, the idea you want to kind of wrap up stories quick, and this is the exact opposite of that. You don't give the viewers the satisfaction of being able to rest <laughs> in a way. And I liked the Jim Hadar ship stuff because it, it would have gotten boring if they were just, you know, on the Defiant and on that Starbase 375. It kind of, you know, got them onto a different set doing this this really unique mission of, you know, we're going to go in undercover in this other ship to destroy the Ketracel depot or whatever. It gave Garrick something to do where he's kind of, he's kind of being like the first officer of because, you know, he's the only guy who can use like the, the view screen thing and not get a, a splitting headache from it. It's not a Cardassian ship they're on. They're on a Dominion right. ship. So this is like for Jem'Hadar soldiers. Why is it yeah. that uh, do, do Cardassians just have some genetic propensity to be? Yeah, better? he just he just guessed like, oh, I saw Ducat using one of these when he invaded the station. Mm. So maybe maybe it won't hurt me like it's hurting you, Cisco. And... Right. OK. You know, it's those things are simple but cool looking when they show the POV shots and you can sort of see, you know, that they're just essentially as if it was almost like a video game and you can yeah. just, uh, you know, do this as an option. They just look through the ship and get a full 360 degree view of everything going on around them. You know, it's I'm sure there's a bazillion other things it's doing, but just as a quick way to convey how, um, you know, how powerful it is. That's pretty cool. And the, their mission to, to blow up that base, you know, the, like, first of all, like, just getting there is a pain in the ass because, like, they're getting shot at by the, the centaur, which, spoilers for Prodigy Season 1, but the centaur makes a, a, an appearance and uh, doesn't, do, we, well, I just, I don't know, we, we, the, the fate of uh, Charlie Reynolds, um, maybe, maybe he doesn't fare too well if he's still in command of that <laughs> ship, uh, but the, the trip there was a pain in the ass. And then when they're there, like everything is going wrong. It's like, oh, like the they're 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 freaking out. They don't believe us. The bomb's supposed to be going off. Well, we got to like time this just right to us. Which I thought that was a clever idea of like the the base is going to blow up when when it starts blowing up. The force field will go down, so that will give us a window where we can escape the the security net is what they called it. But yeah, it's a super tense scene. It's like kind of classic suspense. Um, only one way for it to go right, it seems, and like about five or six ways for it to go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, this this is going to suck, but we're smart people. We, we we only got a few seconds. We figured out a plan. Okay, we got a plan. Let's do the plan. Oh, no, the bomb's already blowing up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. How how is it that they get out, or is that how they get, like, damaged, or? Yeah, the, the bomb went off before they, like, hit the gas to take off, and so mm-hmm. that, that damaged their ship, and they lose their warp drive, so there's... Uh, it's going to be a long ass trip to get home, but uh, that's, they don't right. even have to worry about that because they end up, you know, crashing on a planet. But that, we'll talk about that in the yeah, next yes. episode here in it, a second. Or uh, goes and organically sets up the uh, episodes to come. Yeah, and, and it's cool. It gives us two like 
You know, originally when we did this, because normally when we talk about these these episode arcs, you know, like the beginning of season two, there's the, that circle trilogy where the Cardassians are trying to manufacture that coup on Bajor and stuff like that, or mm-hmm. like when there's two parters. Normally we just talk about kind of like, you know, that whole arc. And, and initially when I was planning out how we were going to break down the season, I was like, oh yeah, maybe we should just do that for like these first six episodes. And then I was rewatching them. I'm like, oh no, like they are very much like their own stories. Like we have undercover ship mission here and then we have, you know, stranded on desert planet next episode the stuff on the station's a little bit more serialized and i kind of like to you know start getting into the ds9 or terok nor under dominion occupation yeah. where as as wayun tells jake oh it's not an occupation what are you talking about this is this is a cardassian station like surely you don't think this is like an occupation like we have this this uh treaty with with Bejour. jake starts to feel very grown up at this season like and he's obviously in kind of an awkward stage where he's both like trying himself out professionally he's trying to figure out what the right thing to do is but he's also being kind of a little bit of a pain in the ass to to like uh, kira and odo and anybody who's thinking about resistance stuff because well they're not thinking about it i guess just yet and he's and he's uh kind of shames him for it kira in particular is an interesting person to watch because she's supposed to keep out of trouble and she is like the last person who can keep out of trouble when there's a bunch of cardassians occupying <laughs> Yeah, it, it makes my skin crawl watching this episode, the scenes of Dukat and Kira. I, I hate how when he's gloating in front of her and, he you know, he's such a creep. Like he's like she knows that he has like these feelings towards her and, and he knows that like she does not return them. But he's like, I don't care. I'm just going to like wear you down. I'm going to make you like me. And it's just I don't know. It's it's creepy. And like I hate like when he like touches her face. And you know what bothers me just as much? I, I hate when he's holding the baseball. It's like, keep your hands off Kira, but also keep your hands off that baseball. Yeah, it's uh, it's like a violation. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, uh, I mean, that that's all there is to it. In the 90s, there was, I'm going to say, a decidedly sort of less respect for those kind of boundaries and the, and the trope, the, the myth of pursuit as this uh, romantic thing to win over, especially women, uh, was still in the ether, I'd say. And so I wonder if there's like, I mean, there's no doubt we're supposed to consider Gold Ducat a creepy bastard, but they, they always, you know, did their best to humanize him. And I did wonder if like it was meant to come off if not somewhat more positive as a quasi redeeming feature of him, like, Oh, I know what it's like to have loved and lost or to want somebody who doesn't want you to. Uh, I, I actually feel a little kinship with gold to Khan. I don't know. But by this point, the writers were like, no, he's, he's, we're going full blown villain with him. I mean, he's, he's pretty bad in it, but you will still go on to see, I mean, I guess him uh, care for his daughter. Although there's always this, possessive ownership quality to it you know it's so so clear that he also just wants he wants her approval but like as like a, as a matter of control yeah he, he basically he wants the whole galaxy to think how great he is i don't know if it's in this episode or others but he talks about how the the bajorans weren't grateful to him no it's, it's a future episode they weren't grateful to him for the relative uh lack of cruelty under his yeah. occupation and stuff. he's he's brought that up before yeah i was i was thinking he kind of had uh th- th- there's there's more of that to come in, in episodes to come but uh yeah it's just the the whole thing with with ducat and then the whole thing with you know quark he's kind of like the first and it kind of makes sense for him but he's kind of the first one to become a bit complacent and just like you know what i'm just gonna accept dominion rule and we kind of slowly see like Kira, it's almost like she's like losing like more and more 
people like like you know we see odo kind of get soft on the dominion eventually and and you know quark and it's like it's really like the big thing that happens in the, the next episode that kind of snaps her out of it yeah, i do like that thematic of how you can become complacent essentially under yeah uh, under a, a, a certain presentation of fascism that if it's not if it's not directly stepping on your throat every day you can start to think ah, maybe you know like or this isn't the worst maybe maybe it's better to at least be in a it could be worse you know it, there, there's worse possibilities yeah a lot of a lot of like oh yeah like uh, you know we you can maybe change the system by becoming a part of it and just hope for like some slow reform and you know like oh that's not too bad mm -hmm. right like and that's and you know I did want to mention this one other thing that I liked about this episode um uh, actually two things real quick one is I liked Kira kind of convincing Odo to use his founder status to get on the council for the station and it's because Weyun would would will look mm -hmm. up to him so much and will get, kind of defer to him, and that's going to give him some power. And that seems like a good idea. But they, um, I can't remember, are they? They're aware that this is also uh, like a sort of um, a win for Weyun too, uh, because it validates right. the Dominion rule. Right, and it also, you know, it it puts Odo in a in a situation where he can become you know more compromised. Right. So there's like it's. It's one of those things where, like, oh, that seems like a cool idea. I'd like to see that forward movement, but it's also like, oh shit, did they just get, did they just get trapped by this? And given what happens to Odo, kind of, yeah. I did want to mention that this is uh, that there's there's more. They continue to work on Nog, and will continue to, you know, during this story arc. I think we talked about this. Uh, maybe was it when we were talking about Prodigy, but that he he is kind of like the anti Wesley. Like it felt like they wanted to to develop and mature him in a way that we never got to see with uh, Wesley. Well, they, they did, but it kind of happened in very fits and starts. It did not feel real organic. It just kind of happened sometimes. So, um, so I was, I was, uh, you know, just continue to like that and then sort of wish, Oh, it's too bad that um, Will Wheaton didn't quite have that strength of, of arc writing that they, that they got to do on Nog. And I would also like to point out that, you know, today on day recording, January 6th is uh, Aaron Eisenberg's birthday. Hmm. So there's right a on. there's a good thing about January sixth. Also, uh, Spock's <laughs> birthday in universe is January sixth. Yeah, yeah. We'll uh, take take what good we can. Sometimes let's keep talking about the the stuff on the station and, and go into the second episode of season six. Uh, rocks and Sh how do you say this word? Shoals. Shoal. Yep. I always feel like I'm saying it wrong, but now Shoals is right, just as if it was okay. S H O L E S. I, I see it written. I don't hear it said, but it's like a, it's an old naval term about like you know beaching a ship. Yeah, I think like yeah, aren't shoals? Isn't that like like rocky like shorelines or something? Yeah, yeah. Which this is an episode about a beached ship. But before we talk about that, we'll talk about some of the station stuff. I'm just gonna read this. Uh, this was written by Ronald D. Moore, directed by Michael Vahar. Uh, Cisco's crew crash land their Jim'Hadar ship into the waters of an alien ocean on a world where a group of Jim'Hadar have also crash landed with only one vial of Ketracel White remaining. Meanwhile, on Terok Noor, Kira finds she cannot live with herself working side by side with the Dominion. And uh, yeah, I, I want to give a, a shout out to uh, Vedic Yasm, or I, I believe was her name. But yeah, she's basically like the Star Trek version of the, like those monks who would protest the Vietnam War by setting themselves on fire. When when right. Kira's like like no, you can't have a protest, and she's like, oh yeah, watch me. But uh, the way that it, the way that it's shot and everything, Jake also kind of rightly calls that one when she's like, oh, you know, they're just gonna use it as an excuse to crack down on us. And Jake's like, so you're gonna um, what does he say? So you're forbidding uh protests. And yeah. she's like, oh, come on, we're not doing that. But she's she's it's starting to get through to her. So she's starting to realize that this is this is 
this approach is not going to work. Yeah, she's becoming a collaborator. Like she, she's becoming right. someone who she would have assassinated during the occupation <laughs> when she was a freedom fighter. Right. But you can absolutely see the path there. Again, right. she's supposed to keep DS9 stable. Well, and, last and, you week's know, episode, you know, let's let's get Odo on the council. Let's get the Bajoran security team back. Okay, that's a good idea. And like, but then all of a sudden, the secu- Bajoran security team is doing the Dominion's dirty work. It's like, yeah, you see where the line was crossed. So, mm-hmm. so just casually and, and naturally, and, and that that's that is frightening. There's a great shot where she just does that slow look around of the. Uh, is it the promenade? Oh, it's when she's an ops. When, oh, you're when she right, sees you're all right. the Jim'Hadar and, and Cardassians. Yeah, she just sees that this whole place, she's just basically surrounded by her enemies. And it has become, like, somewhat second nature. She's come to accept it on some level. And you can, like, feel her kind of internal self-loathing at, like, oh, shit, oh, shit. Like, it's like she kind of is coming to that moment. Yeah, and, like, um, if it could happen to Kara, it could happen to anyone. When she's like, thank you, Mavic, to the right. guy, like, you know, bringing her a coffee. It's like, wow, like, that is, like, you never thought you would see it. But yet it, it does, you know, like you say, like, it does feel, like, so organic that we could have gotten there. And, you know, she's a person who kind of, she's done her time. Like, she she fought in the revolution, so, uh, you know, she she deserves a life where she can she can rest and relax and not have to, to fight these fights again. So, you know, it's it's just very unfair. It's it's a sad and, and sad things. It's not like... Um, it's not as if she hasn't done her revolution already. <laughs> Turns out uh, you can't get complacent, I guess. I've I've mentioned this before when we were uh, discussing DS9 over the years, but as a kid watching the show for the first time, I always felt so sorry for Kira. I just I don't know if it's just like the way like Nana visitors, like just like when when I see like her face sad, it makes me sad. Mm. Uh, full disclosure, like it tends to be like cute women actors that have that effect on me but I, i've noticed that in the past like it, when, when they're sad it, like it makes me really sad when i'm watching i, I don't know if, it, if that was it or, or or what but yeah i used as a kid i would like stress about this i would worry about her so mm. much and she's a character a lot of people would complain about one of the reasons i sort of gravitated to her character early on in, in, in our ds9 watch was because she is also i think really good at being emotive and like to, to as a quick counterpoint o'brien goes through a lot of hell too and it's not like i don't think that we're like like seeing those O'Brien must suffer episodes don't have like an effect, but yeah, maybe there is something I think to the way she can express that emotion. It's the fact that she can be so tough at times and then sort of show this vulnerability and, and like you kind of really feel for her. And it may be that we're both like come from a time when we're also just a sucker for a pretty face. (laughs) Um, And and that's just is what it is. But I, I do like when she does get, you know, the fire lit under her ass and she's talking to Odo about, yeah, let, let's have like a, you know, full-blown resistance. And Odo's like, I'm not sure if that's a good... And she's like, no, Odo, I can do this with you on my side or I can do this with you against me, but I'm doing it, you know, one way or another. Yeah. As I was like making notes and I, I revisited this episode briefly and I was like, oh, she, she's like, there's, she's like, I don't want to be fighting against you, Odo. And I was like, oh, wow, that's prescient. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that really sets up something that's going to happen in just an episode or two. <laughs> well, let's talk about the ship stuff on the planet. Uh, we get one of my favorite uh, recurring actors in Star Trek. He's one of those guys who keeps showing up different shows, different characters. But Phil Morris, I talked about him in season five. He played one of the uh, the, the Klingons that showed up in that season. Uh, he was the little kid in the army helmet in Miri in the original series. Uh, so he's been in Star Trek ever since he was a, a child. I got to see him at Star Trek Las Vegas and talk to him a little bit a couple months ago. That was uh, really cool. He's done like a lot of stuff like outside of Star Trek that I'm I'm a fan of. He does a lot of like uh, voice work and animation, and 
He does a lot of like DC stuff. He was a Martian Manhunter on Smallville. But yeah, Phil Morris has this really cool Jimador. He's my favorite Jimador in the entire show, I guess. The the third who's commanding these men because the first and second died, but their Vorta commander is so bitter he won't promote this guy to first because he got his orders questioned by him. Mm-hmm. So he remains third. This is a really well drawn character, and I, I, in a lot of ways, it's like such a Ron Moore episode because it really wants you, it really wants to twist the knife um, yeah. a lot. And and there's, I'll, I'll talk about it more at the end. But there's something that I'm like, well, I, all right, I'm gonna go ahead and say it now. <laughs> it's a, I'm like, I can't recall another time on any Star Trek show where essentially the leads, the lead officers, engaged in a slaughter. <laughs> I know that they didn't set it up. They didn't choose it. They were trying to do everything they could avoid it, but they slaughter those soldiers at the end. And, and, and it's a hand that they were forced into by a a clever Vorta. Um, And it's, I was like, that's messed up on Star Trek. That is very messed up. (laughs) Yeah. And that, that Vorta Keevan, he, that actor is so, I don't know his name. I should look into him, but I think he does such a good job here. He, he does very much, like he feels like the same species as Weyoun as what Jeffrey Combs is doing. But he's not copying that. He's like, he's a different character, but you still kind of feel that. It's, it's kind of like, you know, like all Klingons kind of act Klingonish, all Vulcans act Vulcanish. It's harder to pin down yeah. like what makes a Vorta a Vorta. It's really hard to like describe it, but like, you know it when you see it and, and you see it with him. for Well, sure. they're kind of like innately political creatures, innately sort of manipulative uh, they their words are always kind of meant to poke through defenses, you know. They're uh, what do you call it? Cisco in the episode is when he's kind of trying to wage a little bit of a psyop war and win over. Um, uh, what's the name of the uh, the the Jem'Hadar guy? Clamadacon. Uh, is it Ram- I Ramada Ramada Clon? Ramada Clon. I, I, I think I wrote it down. If yeah, Ramada yeah. Uh, Clon. He, he's right. talking. He's talking about having, you know, witnessed a a coup essentially by some other Jem'Hadar against a failing, um, oh yeah, uh, Vorta commander. A se- season four episode to the death. Yeah, and he describes them. You know, he's he's clearly trying to be a little. He he himself is trying to manipulate in a way like a Vorta, but yeah, he says that they're manipulative, they're cowardly. He's 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 pointing out all the ways they are not like the Jem'Hadar, and it, you know, hoping to drive that wedge between them. And um, it reminded me, I think I've, I've brought this up before, maybe even recently, but there's the, that uh, samurai comic book, Usagi Yojimbo, happens to be about a rabbit samurai, but it actually sort of takes its samurai lore seriously. And there was an ep- issue or a storyline I remember from years and years ago, decades ago, where two samurai, he, he runs up against the samurai who's essentially serving an evil, evil lord. And they talk about this kind of like an axiom within their culture, within their military culture, that it's the, the samurai who serves a loyally serves an evil lord is actually a greater samurai than the one who serves a good lord, because that quality of loyalty is tested hardest in him. And he is truest to the samurai oath of loyalty. So it kind of shows you where their values are. And and it's like and I remember reading that for the first time. and It was just so alien. I was just like, that is so weird and like fascinating. And that is what is a happening in this episode though the to the Jem'Hadar this is like the the way that they have to live that's how Phil Morris described his acting in this episode is he said he that's the way he approached it was as a as a samurai who has to serve a some bastard who happens to be his master oh <laughs> they literally use that um that yeah. that that uh, uh analog uh that's that's cool and yeah I love that guy the guy who plays is Keevan yeah is that the the Vorta uh, he does. He's a, his his delivery is. It's not like it's dripping with malice. He's not 
over the top. In fact, he's injured and on his back, and yet on his back he still commands this power. You know, he um he is in a spot. He doesn't have enough Ketracel White for them, and uh, he also wants to. He's going to die if he doesn't get help. So the first his first thing is he um, trades some prisoners to uh, that he's he's captured what um, Quark and uh, Garrick and uh, in, Nog in and Garrick. For some, uh, Noggin Garrick and and, yeah, that, uh, uh, and get some medical attention for himself. And then um, he realizes that uh, these guys, when they run out, are going to st- sort of go on a killing spree. And, and you know, I was looking at it from his perspective at first, and I was like, he's he's right. I don't know a way out of it. Eventually, Cisco does actually come up with a pretty good alternate plan, but it's too late because these loyal foot soldiers won't do it. <laughs> and yet, you, you know that um, Ramada Klan... He's cognizant enough. He's he, he does seem to have a little bit more going on than your average uh, Jem'Hadar soldier. He's cognizant enough that this is kind of messed up, that this is not how things should be to know to, to, to really be this tragic figure when he gets sacrificed. The fun part of this episode for me, though, is like some of the banter between Nog and Garrick. That, I guess that well, I guess there's like some fun stuff with like Cisco trying to like, you know, keep morale light. And when he's joking around with with Dax, injured Dax about like her uh her stay at the hotel, but the Nog and Garrick stuff's really good. The sort of like, this felt very natural when they're just climbing out of the water and they notices mm-hmm. that like O'Brien's pants are torn and he just kind of starts laughing at it. Like it's just that kind of giddy laughter. That's just like a release when you've just been like, you're exhausted or you're just stressed to the absolute max. And they've just barely survived this crash. And like, he starts laughing and everybody, including O'Brien starts laughing because they just need that release. Uh, yeah. There, there, there's, there's these good moments, but I know what you're talking about with Garrick. And, and Nog, it's the one where Nog is like, I am not, what does he say? I'm not going to like walk uh, in front of I'm you. I'm not going to turn my back on you. Yeah. Like you, you walk in front of me. You're a little backstabbing person. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like he, uh, well, he I had him exact- captured at uh, Impak Noor when, when Garrick went crazy and captured Okay. Nog I couldn't and... remember the context for it. Okay. It was, it was the big Garrick episode. Yeah. Yeah. But Cisco, you know, like he's lost his ship. He's like stranded on this. All these guys, like the clothes on his back and a couple of phaser rifles. And you know a few survivors from that that ship. This is this is this is how like defeated he is here. And you know so over the course of, like the next few episodes, like he'll go from here to uh, reclaiming the station, which is you know it does make that victory taste so sweet. You you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to enjoy that as much if you didn't suffer through this first. And uh, the, his anger at the end when when uh, the oh, you know man. when they are forced to kill all these Jemadar. Yeah, it's um if you you know that if they could um. If they didn't have the broadcast and uh, standards limitations, he was going to say some some words there, some impolite, <laughs> non-family words. Uh, he he, it's almost like he self censors, because uh, yeah, they 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 have to slaughter these guys. They still lose one of their own. Uh, you know the the um, Jemadar aren't, aren't pushovers by any means. And then this guy just comes walking out. He's like, I surrender. And it's kind of like uh, if you ever seen the Untouchables when the guy who mm. um, who's done some very bad things in it, I'm going to say. He does say he surrenders to uh, Kevin Costner's character, and he real sleazily, he's like, arrest me, Mr. Treasury Man, come on. And uh, it doesn't go well for him. But uh, that was because that movie, that was his big cathartic moment, uh, is that this guy doesn't get out of it. But this guy does, because the Forda is smarter than that dude in the movie who's just a henchman. But yeah, yeah, Keevan, Keevan wins. Cisco knows he's been had, yeah, and he's just... Uh, you know, ultimately, of course, uh, I guess if you if you want a big picture look at it, 
Kiva wins, but I guess they get off the planet because he gives them a, the, what they need to uh, to get their communications yeah. up and running. To, to call Worf and the Klingons to I come mean, rescue them. I mean, arguably, Cisco being so vital to the war effort, this was worth it. But yes, absolutely in the moment. The and they, they have a Dominion prisoner now, but they have like this captured Vorta, so. It's true. It's true. I guess it's the last we'll ever hear of him, or I don't know. Well, I don't know. All right. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell me. Uh, but yes, this was a really good dark episode, real focused. There, there is the backstory that's on DS9, but otherwise it's a nice sort of focused uh, break from the, you know, all the station intrigues and stuff. One of my favorite of the season. Well, then let's talk about what happens after they get picked up by the Klingons. And we get the episode uh, Sons and Daughters, written by Bradley Thompson and David Weddle, directed by Jesus Salvador Trevino. Alexander Rojenko joins the crew of the Rotaran, much to the disappointment of Worf. On Terok-Nor, Torazial returns to the station, where Dukat intends to use her to get closer to Major Kira. So yeah, this is a story about a son and about a daughter, so aptly named Sons and Daughters. Uh, we have uh, Alexander and Zial. Let's talk about Alexander first. Uh, Dave, you had asked me recently, like, uh, do we ever see Alexander again after after <laughs> TNG? And I was like, yeah, he does show up in, in yeah. DS9, so, so here it is. You know, when he first spots him and he's like, you know, the, there's like a roll call of the new recruits, uh, which like they didn't, they wanted 15 and they only got five. So yeah. things are already a bit rough. War as hell. When he talks, he's got this kind of deeper voice than I expected, you know, is like just, uh, and I was like, oh, did he go off and secretly become a badass <laughs> for, for just a minute? I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, this, this kid's going to be trouble. Um, and, and he's trouble, but in a, in a different way, because this is about um, the, the difficult thing where... He may not ever live up to Worf standards. He does not have it in him. He is kind of in a desperate act here of – I can't remember. Does he, does he ever just straight up vocalize fathery that he's like trying to do this to in some way connect with his father or like die? I, I think he was doing it to, to die. I, this is what I – this is my theory. Okay. Like Alexander, I was thinking, yeah, he didn't quite ever say right. as much as Martok and Worf try and get him to say it. It's a little bit nebulous because we know like he didn't want to be a warrior. We saw that in, in Next Generation. And, Utterly you know, disappointment yeah. for Worf. And, and, you know, this was the story was created because the writers must have been like, oh, we've been ignoring Alexander for so long. Let's actually, you know, shine a light on that and be like, yeah, Worf, why haven't you you know, talked to your son or whatever? Right. And it was not to like say there's a good reason for it. It's to say, oh, you done screwed up, man. Yeah, yeah. So they they didn't you know they didn't like pull any punches. They they kind of beat up Worf and you be like, yeah, this guy's being a shitty dad. Let's tell a story about that. It's when Martok, you know, who's basically Worf's adopted father at this point, says he's yeah. like or big brother. I think he's more like a big brother, but yeah. Right. What he says, he's like, you know, he's like, in all this time I've known you, he's like, you've never even told me you had a son. I'm yeah. like, man, which is so that's fucked up. That does not look good. <laughs> Um, and I appreciate them allowing for it and, and, you know, and allowing his character that kind of growth, but also that kind of flaw. There's no real excusing it. But my my theory on, on why Alexander is here on, on the Rotaran is that, you know, when his dad has, you know, stopped living with him, stopped communicating with him, whatever, I, like he's like really pissy about that. And so he's like, oh, OK, so like you don't you don't love me or value me as a son. I'll go like join the Klingon Defense Force and die in this war and be you know do like the the glorious klingon thing and then make you sad and make and then like then you'll miss me and then you'll appreciate me and then you'll right. feel bad for trying to push me to be a warrior and stuff like that he denies it he tells Worf like no this has nothing to do with you but yeah i don't i don't believe that i think i think i think you're you're right yes it, like it has something of the of any 
you know, this is not to invalidate uh, sort of <laughs> where suicidal ideation comes from for people, but that there, you know, it is pretty common for like people to uh, at least have some element of that in their teens, and and think like I do, about how doing it would hurt people, and and like I think he is kind of doing it to hurt Worf. He may not, you know, obviously he's not like some grand master plan, but that that is the emotional thing that I think brought him to that place. Is yeah, he's like I'll die, and he's gonna feel so sad, and this will be the the best way I can hurt him. They they did soap opera age him up. Because uh, I think he's only eight years old at this point, but, you know, he, he oh, looks like he's much older than that. But, you know, he kind of always aged fast uh, when he was I, – I think that Klingons age like two or three times faster than human children. Because when he was when he was two, he looked more like a four to six-year-old when he's – Oh, wait a second. How old was he supposed to be when he was like, I don't know, having a mud bath with um... – Loxana? He would have been like four or five, but, you know, he seemed more like he was like 12. Or was that a was that a season that might have been season six TNG? So this might be five years, but yeah, it's not, it hasn't hasn't been. They needed him to for practical purposes to be kind of older. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and different different species age at different rates. So he, he was yeah. always aging. You know, he we see him conceived in uh, season two of TNG, and and you know he aged pretty quickly on that show. So I felt like it was kind of t- keeping in the same. I can tradition. I can squint and roll with it. It's um. Uh, you know, it's weird because sometimes, you know, like races like Klingons or Vulcans that are human enough, you know, they do, uh, they have a lot of human mannerisms, even though they're supposed to be pretty culturally different. Yeah, you know, it's like, well, if some some races live a long time, and that's weird for us to wrap our mind around, the notion of anybody of, of maturing faster, th- that's not something we see as often. We're, we're definitely used to long-lived races like elves and stuff from fantasy novels. Um, but it's a little weirder to have like an eight-year-old who's basically like a 16-year-old. But yeah, certainly, and, and certainly just if you look at older times, they'd be like, oh yeah, I ran away from home when I was eight, and I served on a steamship uh, when I was 10. It's <laughs> just like, really? <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll, I'll allow it. But I, I, don't, I don't even think it's anything we have to like try to allow or make sense Right, right. Just, just cling, cling on, Klingons... Klingon children grow up fast. We saw like a Jim Hadar kid grows up in like you know two days. They become like a full yeah. adult. And it's like with with Klingons, it's not quite that fast, but it's still pretty fast. Uh, but Martok gets a lot of cool stuff in here. It, it's just nice to have. Uh, I guess Klingons could have like a lot of uh, toxic elements of their culture. If you want to, you know, like yeah. look at it seriously, just a lot of the uh, machismo and just kind of the. I mean, it's a lot of the same machismo that. That goes on, or that was a tradition in our very, you know, very modern military. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea that you know you you toughen up, you become loyal to your friends or to your your ship's allies. Yeah, they they might you know kick your ass even sometimes, but you're gonna bond because of it. But it's cool to see like a a Klingon who actually like oh yeah he's actually like really supportive and he's like a good friend to these people that he's welcoming into his family and uh, you know he gives good advice to people and I, I love Martok he's he's like he's the best Klingon. The scene where he's he's kind of like practicing with uh, with Alexander and tries to get through to him is particularly good. He does a, he does some tough love in there, but for a Klingon, he's actually kind of being a big softy. Mm-hmm. And, and and we'll see that that actually many Klingons in, have that side of them at some point. It's just a side that they don't publicly reveal. They're at least always publicly turning on the machismo. And the other other Klingons are kind of cool, like the the Klingon bully on the ship. He kind of 
you know, he he's still got Alexander's back when like they go into battle and stuff. And I mean, yeah, it is. You know, in that sense, it is kind of like the way that the, the military works sometimes. Uh, more in uh, previous decades, but I'm I know it's still a big part of it now. Where yeah, you might give somebody shit, but it, it uh, there is a sort of uh, bond of just that the you're under such stressful situations that yeah, when the when the shit hits the fan, you're kind of like oh yeah, I I I. I beat this dude up at the mess hall but i would also potentially give my life for them so it's yeah kind of like adam baldwin scumbag character in uh full metal jacket oh yeah yeah yes <laughs> animal mother oh yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah animal mother yeah <laughs> that's a great name for a bastard yes he's so so terrible in that just uh like like and also a war criminal but... you know what else is terrible is that my, my uncle who served in the entire vietnam war uh, from beginning to end, he said that is the most single, most realistic Vietnam movie he's ever seen. Yikes, that's uh, unnerving. <laughs> I, I rewatched it just recently. I, I think it's a great movie, by right. the way. But yeah, it's it's a lot. Um, by the way, Father, as far as like intense lines, when Worf before he is able to sort of reforge stuff with Alexander near the end, he says uh, he says the Jem'Hadar will cut you to pieces, and Alexander says, "Then I'll be dead, and you'll be happy." And I'm like, that's, you know, yep. that that pretty much cuts cuts to uh, the heart of both. Like, I think, you know, you're you're right. That's that is what Alexander's motivation was. And it's it shows how much Worf did fail him, you know, in his time. Yeah. On the station, though, uh, you know, they have their little resistance with Jake and Odo and Kira. They're, you know, having to to exist under Damar and Dukat and Weyoun being assholes. But then Ziel shows up. And, you know, she's she's forgiven her dad. You know, he was, like, willing to blow up the station in season five uh, with, with her on it. Uh, keep in mind, though, like, he was mad at her because he didn't like her hanging out with Garrick. And Dukat being as egocentric as he is, he thought, like, oh, Kira, it's because, like, because you resist me, because you're resentful to me, even though I'm this great man who you should bow down and love and appreciate. Uh, but because you're just the, the, the spiteful bitch, you've turned my daughter against me. And, and you know Kira's like what the hell are you talking about Dukat like yeah. she, she wants to be friends with this other I don't even like Garrick but yeah I get like she wants to be friends maybe more with this other Cardassian like just chill. not everything's about you Dukat uh, but <laughs> that, uh, in that moment you know in his anger he, he clearly does have some feelings for Zial you know he he at one point he threw away his career and his his wife and and, and other family to spare her life so he does have like some as twisted as he is you're, you're right Dave when you mentioned earlier he does have like some genuine feelings for Zial, but it's always it's always kind of fucked up with Dukat. Like here, like he is repairing his relationship with his daughter, I think partly because he does have feelings for her, but also partly because he wants to like trap Kira and be like, oh look at like this kid you've become a surrogate mother to. Now you're gonna be in my life more and I'm gonna right. buy he you keeps... a pretty dress. And... Yeah, he's like he's like you are coming to the party tonight for for my, for Zial. Right, you're gonna come to Zial's party just for Zial. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. There's, he's absolutely trying to manipulate her into it, and and she also has one of those sort of come to Jesus moments when she's looking at the dress. And I think doesn't she does she do a thing where she's like, oh, this is so pretty. She's looking at the mirror and she's like, what a great dress. And then she's like, what am I doing? Yeah, <laughs> and that is the one moment. Like this kind of seems redundant after her big turn in the second episode when she's it's like true. looking around at all like the Jim'Hadar and Cardassians. The the reason. I think that that's in there is because they were having to rewrite these episodes and, you know, some writer is changing something in one episode and then the other writer had to change something else. And some of the stuff was even shot out of order because they had to go on location for the, the previous episode. And so they had to shoot other they had to shoot this stuff first. 
And the, the, this writer's room wasn't, you know, it was the 90s. People didn't write a lot of television like this. The, and the, this is documented. You can read, you know, Ron Moore and Hans Beimler have talked about this. And I think that's why that this happened. Uh, there's some more, like, really tight string continuity stuff like this in DS9 that happens in Season 7, though. And when they do it there, it is so flawless. Like, they, they got, like, a little, you know, the kinks, you know, worked out here in, in these six episodes. So they're able to, to do an even better job of this type of stuff in Season 7. Yeah, it, it I mean, holds I up so think, well. I still think it works because, like, mm -hmm. well, you can you can feel like you've made a big change and still waver, um, and and the the the, the personal connection with Ziao because she's like a big sister slash surrogate mom even at times to Ziao. So yeah, I can see why that might you know make her resolve waver her her resolve to just start fighting back. So I think I think it works. Uh, but that's interesting that it was, yeah, that, that, that it is, you're, you're not wrong, it's a little repetitive. Yeah, I feel like that's like the only bump in the road in the six-episode arc. Uh, you know, you, you couldn't tell that like, oh yeah, these are writers that were completely unused to this format, and they were scrambling behind the scenes to pull it off. You know, it, it really does work. Let's move on to season six, episode four, Behind the Lines, written by Renee Etreveria, directed by LeVar Burton, so we have a Geordie-directed episode. When... Kira's resistance cell learns that the Dominion will soon be bringing down the Federation minefield. They plot to hinder the enemy's progress. But matters are complicated when the female changeling arrives on Teroknor and pays Odo a visit. Meanwhile, Captain Sisko is relieved of command of the Defiant, while Jadzia commands it on a mission. A mission we don't see, by the way, but we have the, the victory party at the end that, you know, bookends the episode. Uh, the, their ritual on the Defiant with the uh, battery, the, the power cell from the phaser relay. That very much feels like a proto Battlestar Galactica scene. Yeah, this is Ron Moore taking notes. Like, I'm gonna go do my own show after this. <laughs> a little leaning into sort of military tradition, and you know the way you might you would keep morale up. I was worried about uh, Dax going off on that mission alone because uh, I, I didn't know where where they were gonna take that storyline. And you know, I'm like, well, Dax has always been shown to be competent, but has like, I don't think I've seen her command combat missions like that. But um, she's. She's, of course, is she's she's a skilled commander. She knows what she's doing. Yeah. I like that they remembered she was a science officer in the middle of all this war stuff. And it's like, oh, because it's the Argolis cluster and it has, uh, you know, these these weird uh, gravitational eddies or, you know, whatever the, um, the there's proto star clusters. And it's like, oh, mm -hmm. yeah, like uh, Jadzia here is actually an expert on that shit. Like she can she can get the defiant in and out of there. Destroy that. Yeah. Uh, that sensor. Yeah, relay. she'll she'll. She'll bring some stuff to the table that uh, that Cisco wouldn't, honestly. And it, it gave you know Cisco the opportunity to be the uh, what what's it called the the ad adjutant? That's another weird word. I don't. Uh, say yeah, he's he's adjutant to the fleet admiral. Is that the deal? Yeah, to to Admiral Ross. Right, helping advise him on big decisions and stuff like that. It's the place they don't usually like in Star Trek. You know, you you almost never want to stop being an active captain uh, and become sort of part of the bigger planning network, mm. or you've left uh, the uh, the exciting dramatic side. <laughs> but uh, with Cisco, I don't think they like fell into any major traps with that. He felt like a guy who should be making the big decisions. I've heard some fan theories that Cisco is such a conniver that he might have manipulated his way into you know being being Ross's selection. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think he's just a really competent. I don't think there's anything to in indicated in the episode necessarily, but you know, <laughs> it, it it could be a, you know, it like it's not the it's not one of those super crazy fan theories. Uh, but you know, he, he does have to plan the. Uh, it's almost like planning like the invasion of Normandy or something, and you're like reek. Uh, I'm a big fan of the movie The Longest Day. 
uh, speaking mm-hmm. of war movies. And, you know, there, there, there's a kind of a big buildup to the invasion. Right. For people who don't know that, like you said, that is that is D-Day, you know, uh, yeah. shown in a very what I would call a procedural uh, way that shows a lot of the detail and planning and bureaucracy and, and how it all, how it was all coordinated. It's and, still incredibly entertaining of a, a, a big budget movie from the early sixties or maybe late fifties. And it has a, a hell of a cast, you know, a lot of big actors, people who would go on to become big actors are in it. So it's, it's a good film. It's a long one, but it's worth it. You know, that's kind of the same thing of, you know, like the anticipation for like this, this big invasion that you're going to try to pull off and, you know, who knows if it'll work. And the station stuff is also really interesting here. We I love the opening of this. We open with Kira and Rom watching, you know, Rom's uh, handiwork. He he pickpocketed Damar's pad about like, maybe we should poison the last last batch of Tetracell white if we're not going to be able to make any more. And then the Jim Hadar found that and it caused a... Uh, a fight in Quarks that turns lethal. There's like Jim Hadar, like Cardassians literally killing each other in this fight. Yeah. The way it's staged where they're watching it happen and kind of talking to each mm-hmm. other as they imagine what's being said. And they're pretty accurate to it. Uh, <laughs> it like, it showed us that, that Rom, uh, while, uh, uh, always a little on the dense side could, could, could roll with the sort of these kind of like more guileful plans that, that they were starting to do as the resistance. Yeah. And, and they just like, it's like their coolest, some of the coolest sort of spy crafty heisty moments of it. Uh, but also brutal. Like, yeah, like you say, people are clearly getting killed. It looked like some Cardassian got his back broken when the, you know, one of those, uh, uh, one of the Jem'Hadar just hoists him up and just bam. Yeah. When, when Dukat and Weyoun come in to like clean up and, you know, they're ta- they're like standing over corpses and Weyoun's like, just keep smiling uh, you know, keep up appearances. We're all friends in the Dominion. Yeah, so that that was cool. And 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 there is at one point in one of these episodes, uh, Weyoun does refer to Rom as the diabolical mastermind. So, <laughs> uh, but the you know the the big thing here is that the the resistance cell is really tested uh, when when Odo you know he's distracted by the uh, the founder who comes aboard and is is linking with him and 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 doing more. Yep. It's like oh, this is like humanoid style sex. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was uh, that's in the next. That episode. was weird, uh, right? Right, but um, the whole time that all of the interactions between the this, the female changeling is she usually just referred to by that? I think the scripts always call her the the female changeling. I I, I think it's easier just to call her the founder. That's what most of these yeah. episodes they call her the founder. Sure, so. let's. But then I feel like I'm uh, like I'm part of the Dominion and I'm having to <laughs> defer to her anyway. <laughs> um, the founder lady, uh, she um, the whole time when he's with her, I was always like, is Odo playing her? Is he? He's clearly like, even if he is, if he's you know setting her up to uh, you know to to manipulate to help his friends, then there's some part of him that is invested. But but like, is he playing her at all? And I'm like. As as things will play out, I believe the answer is no. <laughs> he was he was legitimately tempted and brought in to the point where I think it's in the next episode that he's like basically they've been in the in the in the his quarters for like three days oh, and yeah. he's like missed meetings and important stuff and he doesn't know that like uh, Rom is going to be sentenced to death and all this stuff and yeah. and he's just completely missed it because they were having a big love in. Yeah, uh, Jill forty seven, our live audience, is asking which episode is the one where Nog gets caught because Odo flakes off. This one, and yes, this is the episode. Uh, the the resistance puts together like a good plan. You know, they they have Quark... it's Rom, right? Not Nog, though. Right? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it is Rom. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm I've been sure blurring them meant, too. Though. So yeah, but you know, the the resistance has a good plan. You know, Quark takes a more active role, which is 
pretty a pretty big deal for him. Uh, it is. You know, he's getting information from Damar. They 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 build up Damar as this. You know, I wouldn't say he's a three dimensional character yet. I but I think he's he's become two dimensional. You know, they've given a little bit of depth to him. Yep. Uh, you know, he's he's very spiteful towards the Bajorans, kind of like a, a standard what we'd expect, like a standard military Cardassian. Uh, he's got a bit of a drinking problem, perhaps. He's you know he's spending a lot of time at the bar. Court gets him talking. Yes, yeah. The one person that he would trust would probably be his bartender. And so yes, he's you know he Quark gets drinks the Canar with Damar. I, I got a bottle of of Canar for uh, for new for for Christmas by the way a couple of weeks ago. It's it's already been consumed, but nice. But uh, yeah, so he you know he 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 gets drunk with Damar, gets the information, and a little bit of levity. You know they're giving him the coffee when he comes into the resistance meeting, trying to explain. But yeah, basically okay, we have Rom. He's a smart dude. He can bring down the array so that the Damar's plan of how to deactivate the mines doesn't work. Odo, all you gotta do is you know make sure the security grid is is off line because you're going to do this diagnostic at that time they got this perfect plan and it would have gone off without a hitch probably but yeah odo was distracted uh linking and Mm -hmm. (laughs) failed to do his part so that but but, you know the way that they describe it is he says it's like paradise it's like yeah it's like you know when they link it's like you know it it must feel like you know you're shooting up heroin or something it's just and a guy who's like always felt like an outsider always longed for his people like he gets he feels that connection he feels like you know where he belongs Right, and unlike heroin, it's the, he, at least as he perceives it, there's no immediate ill effects. It's like it's uh, there's no uh, there's right. no downside. It's like what uh, he's he hardwired I, to do. Like he's like what he's like, yeah. Designed that becomes to his Ketracel. It becomes his Ketracel white. Yeah. So it, it, she she has this this hold over him, you know, kind of. And there's a, a as evil as the founder lady is. There's the strange warmth you know, towards Odo. I guess it's not even strange. They've been pretty consistent with that, but... In the next episode, Wayun will compliment her, and he's like, oh, you've very masterfully neutralized uh, Odo. And she's like, that's not what I was doing. She's like, I really want him back into the link. So it, it's true. Um, yeah. She says, like, she would... She wants him more than, you know, the entire Alpha Quadrant. Yeah. That's, that's how full of themselves they are. That's how that's how much <laughs> they, they love each other. Uh, Jill uh, says, again, in the comments, she says it really freaked her out what Odo did to Rom. And yes, as I was just saying, I, I totally agree. I was like, surely he must be playing her. There's no way that Odo just... But but yes way. Uh, Odo has been so... You know, they, they, they didn't always explain it, but always in the background of his character is how utterly lonely he is and uh, disconnected in, in, in many ways to other people. And finally, he has that connection with, I'm going to say, a lot of sexual fulfillment, uh, but like times times 100, apparently. So, yeah, he, he really did, just as Worf really did fail his son, and, you know, he really did fail Rom and Kira and the Resistance. Uh, and uh, that's some pretty great drama. <laughs> well, let's uh, get into these, these next two episodes. They'll, they'll kind of, like, flow into one another but uh favor the bold sure. followed by sacrifice of angels let's talk about favor the bold first but this is the beginning of our our efforts to recapture the station written by ira stephen bear and hans beimler directed by winrick colby tired of being on the losing end of war captain cisco convinces starfleet command to launch a fleet of starships to retake deep space nine meanwhile time may be running out for rom so so yeah rom is uh locked up it's they're getting ready to execute the ferengi bring down the minefield um both sides of those story have people very much petitioning desperately to get something done in rom's case they're desperately trying to keep him from being executed it's like mm-hmm. kira's going to the bajoran council and 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 uh quark has talked to the grand nagus and over in cisco's storyline he's they're they're trying to get the uh what the galron 
Chancellor Galron to sign off yeah. on sending over a fleet. Well, they had to they had to sell it to Starfleet first. I mean, that was a, and sell to Starfleet first. Yeah, yeah, that that was kind of an uphill battle because you know th- those admirals are like, if we give you all these ships, that leaves Earth vulnerable. But you know, Cisco argued that that's a risk we have to be willing to take because if if those mines come down, it's you know it's all over anyways. Yep, it's uh, you know, um, th- I know those mines are essentially a plot contrivance, but uh, you know, in the same way that technology sometimes determines, you know, the follow through of, of various uh, of, of battles that that is essentially that is what they pick to be the thing that yeah. that forces people to organize around the, the uh, self-replicating mines kind of always bugged me that always felt like a bit of a stretch but everything else around this is so good i i find it easy to forgive the thing is like yes it's like that as a plot device it's a plot device but does technology like i remember like even as far back as the first gulf war just how vital the scuds and patriot missiles were it was just kind of constantly in the news those missiles that could shoot down other missiles and missiles that could not be shot down and things like that oh the uh the nintendo war stuff yeah that but but the technology was was yeah it was front and center and this is just a case of a slightly deus ex machina techno- mm. technology being front and center, but the actual basis for it, very real. Uh, you know, if not mines, not those specific mines, but the that kind of storyline. And I think the the important thing, and I guess like in any any time you're dealing with like war or big battles or anything, uh, especially like in a science fiction setting, but it's important that your audience understands, you know, what the objectives are, what you're trying to do, who's winning, who's losing, what ship belongs. It's got to always side. be cleanly done. Yeah, and, and these two episodes do a great job of that, I, I think. Uh, I, I don't think there's any confusion or, or haziness. Well, there's a great opening action scene with the Rotaran and the Defiant pulling yeah. a cool maneuver. And and for a minute you think, oh, that's great. What what a cool scene. And then you find out that they're now going to like retreat, essentially. And you know that's when O'Brien says, uh, I think he's like, attack, retreat, attack, retreat. Mm-hmm. He's And it's just like, well, because of, uh, you know one of our leads, O'Brien says it, and everybody is kind of like looking weary. You know it's true. Instantly, within five minutes, you know that the that the, somehow the war is still going poorly for them, and that morale is shit. <laughs> yeah, and Dax, you know, verbalizes that to Cisco. Like, we really need a victory. Like, pe- people cannot keep fighting this hard and keep <laughs> losing. Like, we got to do something. I felt like he has the prelude to the kind of the energy of his, like, we're going to take back Deep Space Nine, just in how he's talking to her. He's like, I couldn't agree more. And then she's like, well, then do something about it. And he's like, I have. And he's, just, he's it's like a little bit of classic Cisco confidence mm. is already there as a prelude to his big plan. With the Odo stuff, you you kind of um, mentioned this already. But yeah, this is like, you know, he's spending the most time with, with the founder that... Uh, what three days you know locked up together <laughs> so that's how the solids do it <laughs> yeah so but you know i i i'm not the first person to think of this this is creepy and disturbing but i wonder if she did like morph into like the form of kira like what what does it uh, you really want with these solids you, you want to bang kira i can do that for you you know i don't think she would have because she brings it up later and he's always uncomfortable about talking about how that's an unfulfilled desire of his and i think she doesn't she that that's something that is like a, it's a it's dangerous to her so i don't think she would have wanted kira to come into the equation at all i think she wants to show she's like this is better than kira obviously right like i i so i think that's probably why she, what she did <laughs> jill in the audience says ugh yeah yeah it's gross <laughs> Uh, I love that Morn plays a, a big, uh, pivotal, important role in the plot here, where he he's actually the one who delivers the message about the the mines are coming down now. Like you have to take action immediately. He sets 
he sets the timeline through his actions, and um, Morn, who never speaks, gets to be the uh, the to prompt the uh, the big the 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 heavy forward momentum. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh yeah, not not only are we going to try and deep, take Deep Space Nine, but we need to do it right now. In fact, it could already be too late. The the show has so many valuable assets. Just like a set dressing <laughs> character like Morn is a, an incredible asset to the show, and it knew, the show knew how to use all those little elements like him. Oh. Even the way that scene is filmed, he's rapping kind of awkwardly. He's he's tying a bow for a present to take to his mother, I think. Right, right. Her and, birthday. Yeah. And a finger comes down to hold the bow in place for him to allow him to tie it. And I think the camera pans up and you see the very serious faces of mm -hmm. – uh, is it Odo and Kira? Kira and Quark and Jake. Okay. But it's like serious faces and, you, and you're like – you know they mean business and I believe the scene just cuts. Like, you don't need mm -hmm. to see them say it. You'll find out subsequently that this is what they're going to do, or they've already said that's what they're going to do. Uh, so the scene has that energy of, like, showing you only what you needed to and showing it in the, like, yeah. kind of most interesting way. Very, very efficient with that. And, and, you know, they've established before that he's a courier. So, you know, it makes sense he'd be, like, the guy who could, you know, get around. I forgot that. Yeah, that's true. And uh, Cisco, when Ross is like, can we trust this information? Cisco is like, I've known this man for five years. So I just love, like, Cisco has built up a trust with Morn off screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, just, yeah, I love that's that. That's fair. Uh, you know who I wanted to? I want to give a shout out to um, to Rom, who throughout this is very self-sacrificing, of course. Um, and uh, when he's saying like he's like, you guys don't even need to get me out. I accept my fate, basically. But he's like he's like, you guys need to stop. Uh, what is it like the anti-graviton beam, whatever it is mm -hmm. that's going to destroy the minefield. That's, that's what it is. And he says he's like, brother, you can do this. You have to do this. You will do this. <laughs> it's just like when Rom gets his moments there, I think some of the absolute best moments on the show. <laughs> yeah, he, he really becomes this guy who's like so like pure of heart and, and yeah. just, you know, cares about everyone else. Unlike his brother, who's, who tends to be <laughs> yeah. quite selfish. Well, that's why that's why he's such a good foil. Foiled, yes, but also I was going to say that's why he was so good at getting information from Damar because Damar is like, you know, oh, uh, yeah. That talks about like he's like some people would put the you know loyalty to their brother above business interests and and Ron, Quark's like not this Ferengi <laughs> and and yeah. you know knowing what we know of him you're like that actually could be true at times it has been true at times yeah yeah it, it makes sense that yeah Demar would be like okay I can trust the scumbag um I have to just this is just something I noticed just a pure little detail I don't know what it meant if it, I think it was just a fun thing but Lita is that how you say her name Lita, Lita? yeah. When she's like thinks that that Rom is likely to die, she says, "Oh, Rom." Well, that's like, kind of her of, catchphrase. That's when, okay. When she, she fell in she love has, with Rom, she would be like, "Oh, Rom!" Like, did, did I, then I probably mentioned this before, but it strikes me as being so similar to "Oh, Rob" on the old Dick Van Dyke show, the way Mary Tyler Moore <laughs> frequently said it. I just wondered, you know, in the same way that Morn is like uh, has was always a nod to an old uh, an '80s sitcom, if this was a callback to a '60s sitcom. Uh, anyway, I, it's, there's nothing to it other than I find it endearing. It's cute. And when she does like that, that little like cry, that like that whimpering cry that <laughs> yeah. she does, which is I think it's almost like borderline too goofy for like these serious moments. But yeah. like I love Chase Masterson so much that like when like I see how sad she looks, like it always makes me start crying when I'm when I'm watching this episode. That's interesting. I almost think like that could even be a little bit of how Mary Tyler Moore did it. Like on certain episodes of Dick Van Dyke show, I'm not 100% sure. I watch a little growing up, but not a ton. But I'm going to look into it and, and, and at some point and just see if there's, you know, if they ever talked about it. Yeah. And, and Jill 47 in the audience is saying that she she seems to remember that from the Dick Van Dyke show, too. I do like the the Wayoon stuff that we get in this 
episode. Part of the the value of having the the Dominion around so much is you you know you can learn more about like Vorta culture and society and stuff. The whole thing of like they're genetically designed not to have any appreciation of aesthetics. Uh, he he doesn't know. Oh, is Zial's art good? Is it bad? I don't know. Would it be better if it was blue? <laughs> in the same way as that uh, one Jem Hadar soldier in the um, pr- an episode or two back was like. He knew enough to know that he was in a bad situation and he just still had to go through with it. Wayo knows enough to know that maybe, like, maybe having aesthetics is something that should have been done, but he's like, the founders are gods and gods don't make mistakes. That's his whole thing. Yeah. But yeah, but he's struggling with it. Some part of him is like, maybe they did, like, you know, on some level, he knows that maybe they made a mistake. He's just, yeah, what, he is, can't what does he say something it. like, sometimes I think it would be nice, you know, if I could carry a tune. Yeah, you know, yeah. Something we take for granted like everyone enjoys music on some level but like not not a vorta i guess but weak eyes good ears when he can you know hear damar and ducat's conversation about uh about yeah. kira but uh yeah ducat's you know really creepy here when he's like oh we're bringing down the mine i'm gonna have like my big victory you know br- i want zial to be by my side you know it's all about him i was gonna say that's that's a perfect example of the way he views zial <laughs> yeah yeah it's like a yeah, talk about this a little bit with the Diviner and Gwen on Prodigy, but yeah, like sh- she's like an extension of him, and not instead of instead of him thinking of her as like kind of like a separate entity, he he sees her more as like an extension of himself, which I think some parents do right. in real life. He wants his daughter prop to uh to be impressed. <laughs> I don't know. Is there anything else you want to mention before we get into the the big battle? Oh, you know what I thought was just a neat little detail in this one was that Cisco, when he's talking to the Admiral, I think said that when all is said and done that he wants to build a house on Bajor, that yes. he's become so connected to it over time that he really genuinely loves the place and he's invested emotionally in it. Even So he's like, and the guy is like, well, you may not be, you may still have to have duties to perform. And he's like, then I'll perform them. And he's then he's like, then I'll go live on Bajor. And I really like that. Yeah. You know, we saw Kirk had an apartment in San Francisco back on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like, well, you know, P- Picard, you know, I guess he had like the vineyard when he went home. You know, he went to stay with his brother. Uh, yeah, Cisco is like, no, I'm gonna, I want a house on Bajor. Like, that's that's my home. That's my that's my mailing address is on Bajor. Yeah, that's where I'm a registered voter. <laughs> and that's where I'm considered a god. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a nice place to live. Doesn't have anything to do with it though. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, one other thing I wanted to mention is when K- Kira and Odo have a uh, a little come to Jesus moment or almost do in this one where he says very sincerely that he's sorry for letting, you know, Rom get imprisoned and all that. And she says, we are way, way past sorry. And I thought that was the blunt, that was the blunt response that he needed at that point mm. is to, to find out how hard he'd hurt her, how much she had betrayed their cause. I love how one of the first shots of this episode, it's just the defiant and the Rotaran at, at Starbase three, seven, five. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but then every time we see it, it, there's like more and more ships there. And then at the end we have like yeah. that big buildup of ships going off to fight the dominion. So let's, let's go ahead and talk about the, do it. the battle to retake DS nine. And so that brings us to season six, episode six, sacrifice of angels written by Iris Stephen bear and Hans Beimler directed by Alan Croker, a large fleet of Federation ships heads towards deep space nine to stop the dominion, destroying the wormhole minefield. A Dominion fleet meets them in battle. Can the Defiant make it in time? Well, that's an exciting synopsis, but yeah, we, really cool CGI <laughs> battle. This was uh, this is unlike anything I've ever seen on television before. Back when I originally watched this in 1997, yeah, 97, I was I was so impressed. I with can this. see why, Dave. You 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 watched this episode for the first time just uh, uh, days ago. 
and you messaged me just to point out like that was so cool when the Klingons show up to make make a path for the Defiant. Yeah, I was like, this is one of the great scenes in in Star Trek battles. They basically it's a if we were using video game terminology or something, we'd call it an over the shoulder shot of uh, as like the Defiant goes through and like all these ships are closing on them, Cardassian Dominion ships, and the Klingon ships are just rampaging through them. It's just just like it it'll give you that feel of like <laughs> like holy shit. <laughs> Yeah, I just it was it was cool how Martok and Worf went is like, well, Galron likes me and he hates you, Worf. So let's go together, tell him that he needs to send ships to help recapture DS9 when his enemy and his friend are both telling him the same thing. He'll have no choice but to agree with us. I don't know if that would like actually work in political arenas, but it it sounded cool. I, I like that. I like that approach, Martok. Yeah, it's it's a good bit of writing, and Klingons are dramatic, a dramatic people. It does seem like the kind of thing that could work on them. And again, you know, I love like the the strategy stuff. We see the Dominion back on the station, you know, planning things out. Dukat basically wants to do what Hannibal did to the Romans. He's like, we're gonna let enough of them in that we can surround them and obliterate them. You know, that was a, a very very famous massacre in, in real history. Everybody at least has some notion of what the other team is doing although you know um ducat uses the scene to kind of embarrass wayoon oh yeah uh, who's not like he's not a tactical guy would you really. like to explain the strategy to the founder <laughs> yeah he embarrasses wayoon yeah. in front of oh, uh, i love that rivalry that's so good that's so that's so juicy mm-hmm. that, that that good drama there but yeah i thought that was like cisco's plan was cool too his, his basic thing is jemhadar to discipline to break but cardassians will get hot under the collar and will if we keep on bashing their ships they will they will come after us in force and we can pull up, make a hole in it. He knows that, uh, you know, like uh, Ducat knows that that's what realizes that's what they're doing. Cisco realizes it may be a trap when they're going in. And but for the Klingon reinforcements, they probably would have lost. <laughs> yes. Well, a lot of uh, a lot of things uh, had to had to happen for them to to win the day in this. But uh, the, this also has like the charge of the light brigade, which was a cool experience for me because like I had just like read this in school like, oh, huh? less than a year before this episode aired. So I was like, oh, I, I know that. And because Miles and and uh, Bashir are in Starfleet, you know, every Starfleet officer apparently has memorized like all the famous literature. You know, they can quote Shakespeare at the drop of a hat or, you know, anything else, all, all kinds of poems, T.S. Eliot. Uh, who knows what else? But yeah, the, the Charge of the Light Brigade. I always thought that was like a, you know, it's about uh, British soldiers uh, getting overwhelmed fighting Russians in Crimea, I think. But okay. uh, I, I kind of hate that poem now because, you know, it, it's used for uh, a lot of like nefarious purposes, in my opinion. Like, uh, right. know, this is why, like, you know, there, there's a, an honor and a valor to even even if you get terrible orders, if you still follow orders or like, you know, a lot of people will say, like, oh, this is why, like, the CIA needs to spy on people so that things like Charge of the Light Brigade doesn't happen. So it's, it's kind of like real life is kind of like tainted that poem for me. But I, I actually like do like appreciate the uh, the poem itself. I find quite a. Uh, quite lovely right you can you can acknowledge that something is stirring while still allowing that it's been politically manipulated and <laughs> you know misused it's basically what what uh Climaticon did that's the charge of the light brigade so right <laughs> uh but that's a funny moment when garrick says uh uh chief how does that poem end <laughs> you don't <laughs> yeah. want to know you don't want to know but the, the jailbreak of Quark and Zial with the with the cake and the the Cardassian guard and then shooting the Jim'Hadar. This is the yeah. first time Quark has ever killed people. Yeah, I feel like this was. Uh, I've several times over the course of this series, I've have thought, oh, this is Quark's finest hour, <laughs> and he has a lot of them. So that's that's a testament, yeah. of course, to their writing overall and his performance. Uh, is it Armin Shimmerman? Is that Quark? Yeah, yeah. 
yeah. but like the, uh, the don't move, uh, lower the force field. You told them not to move. Oh, you don't move. You lower the, <laughs> the Jem'Hadar. Like, we should just like murder this dude. Yeah. <laughs> but then they get shot. He's got to pull some John Woo action and give him the double guns. Yeah. You're dual wielding, as we would say back in a, a Halo 2 from uh, 2004. Yeah. That also works, by the way, in, uh, I believe, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, okay. Dual wield is also a thing there. <laughs> the end of this episode, the, the, the Defiant uh, being the one. I, I've always thought that was so cool. It's like this one ship that makes it through. So they just they just barely get a ship there to the to the station, and Rom does all the cool stuff. You know, Odo shows up. Odo brought his security dudes to help out. So and and uh, Rom is there to to deactivate the the graviton beam, and you know they're just seconds too late. The mines go down. The Defiant has to go into the wormhole to face the the Dominion fleet. And this is where some people that are critical of this episode, and I I understand why people would say this, but it does get referred. Some people refer to it as a deus ex machina. Sure. It's as literal a deus ex machina as you can get because it well, is literally gods. <laughs> it is. But uh, this is why this is why I, I disagree with that criticism. It's uh, because, you know, when people say that, it's like, oh, yeah, like the writers, you know, they crafted this uh, big problem and then they weren't able to craft like a good solution. So it's like, boom, God, you know, fixed it or whatever. That's not what happens here at all, because they could have just had Rom... Uh, stop the graviton beam in time. That's all they needed to do, and th- th- you know it, it still would have been this this big battle. The Klingons had to come in to help. Odo had to ch- change sides. Quark had to have his big hero moment and and show some courage that he's never shown before. All of that stuff would have still had to uh, work out. So it still would have felt like an earned victory. But it's very important that they still fail here because this this is this will pay off more in later episodes. But but everyone needs. That's to, what like, I was gonna say. Is I sort of feel like I need to see hmm. where it goes. To fully right. judge it, but yeah, I, I encourage I encourage everyone listening to this like really remember this this point I'm going to make right here because this, this is important for like the rest of the show. This playing out the way that it does, this should have been a victory for Ducat. He should have been the guy. He did you know everything. He he brought in the Dominion to build up Cardassia again. He recaptured the station. He got his throne back where he could you know lord over the Bajorans. He uh, it was the strategic mastermind who could stop the the Federation fleet from getting back to the station. He did every single thing right. And the only reason why he he doesn't just defeat the entire Alpha Quadrant, the Klingon Empire, the Federation, all of them. The only reason why he fails is because Cisco has these wormhole aliens, these Bajoran gods on his side. And that was the deciding factor. And that will be a big influence on Dukat for what happens next later on. But this nice. because of how this plays out, like it, it actually it, it's not a Deus Ex Machina. You know, they 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 didn't have to use the wormhole aliens. They had they had another they, they subverted what a bit what would have been like the obvious, you know, earned victory when they had Rom just be like a split second too late. This is one of those ones where I think like to, to be it's almost ones where you have to just allow for some faith in the writers. It's like they've never hmm. They've never thrown emotional scenes or sudden victories. It's not like it's a habit of them to be doing deus ex machina stuff. So it's like, oh, well, if they did this, I wonder if there's a point to be done or a story arc to be had out of it or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly it is not as if the prophets have not played a role since episode one. <laughs> the death of Zial. Uh, Dave, did, what do you think about that? Did you see that coming or did that, did that hit you hard or what was your reaction? Did you know about this? You know, Zial as a character is like, you know, one that's, 
like I've always sort of felt for her, but I didn't have like special ties to her. Uh, although like the thing where she was actually starting to like get sort of recognized for her art as someone, by the way, who's who's been an art student before. Yeah, yeah, you were you were a young artist once upon a time. Yeah, I was like, oh, I felt really good for her. I didn't particularly think that she might be on the chopping block. You know, it just it just didn't occur to me. It's not like I think that she's uh, has like what they would call plot armor or anything like that. I was just like, oh, I just didn't think that that was particularly something they were going to do, or I didn't I wasn't dwelling on it. And so I was pretty shocked that it just bam it just happens that really sucks for her by the way is like she's been torn apart you know between cultures kira did so much to try and get her on you know the straight and narrow she grew up in a brain prison camp yeah like she has already had all of these terrible things happen to her and she was finally getting a little bit of uh some possibilities in her life boom that's it yeah, yeah, it, it is It is sad, but, you know, for this to really feel like a war and feel like, you know, this earned victory getting back to the station and everything, like, I, I think it would have it would have rang hollow if someone didn't die. For sure, for sure. By the way, great line from Cisco when he's calling out the prophets and he says, you want to be gods? Then be gods, <laughs> you know? He, he, he definitely told them to do what they did. And, and, like, the scene doesn't just randomly happen. There is a sort of a buildup to it. And, yes, I, what I'm going to assume is will be some fallout from it. I love, by the way, that scene. What, what, made, what made that scene work for me was when Zial tells Dukat that she had helped the prisoners out. So yeah. before she dies... They have this moment where he 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 actually does look genuinely pained. Like he he's like he kind of can't believe the betrayal, and and yet probably would still help to cover it. And uh, yeah, then Demar takes the takes her out of the equation. Yeah, and, and she when she says, you know, I'm not going with you, Dad. I'm staying here on the station. But then she says, I love you. And you see how mu as much as we all hate Dakot, he's vile, he's terrible. As much as we all hate him, you do see his eyes light up. When, like he that's. A big part of what he wanted is, you know, and it's part of his, you know, big ego and everything. But yeah, like he wants to be loved. He goes about it the entirely wrong way. But yeah, like he he wanted someone to, you know, recognize him and value him and appreciate him and care about him. And he had a split second of that with Zial and then Damar. Damar, he's there's a later episode where they actually refer to Damar as like a by the book soldier. He's like, she just confessed to being a traitor, committing acts of treason. <laughs> I shot yeah. her. Like right, and that's when they were all pulling out. Right, it's not like this was like, yeah. oh, we've got lots of time to think about things. This is, this is after Wayun was like, oh, time to pack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have no idea where this story will go, and that's what's so kind of so exciting to me. I'm like, well, you know, um, I'm going to guess that uh, Ducat is not happy about that, but Ducat also doesn't seem like he's some engine of vengeance at the end of this. Maybe he becomes one. I don't know. He looked he looked broken. He was yeah. just broken. He's getting shipped off to uh, what it, it seems at the end, you know, he might be going to the Federation funny farm where they kept Dr. McCoy in Star Trek three. <laughs> Doesn't he like, is it Zial that he says, I forgive her. And like, I forgive you too, to see Cisco yeah. and gives him back the, the uh, baseball. baseball. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I was not expecting that. I thought that Cisco would come and take it from him or something like that. So that was, that was a fascinating mm. scene. Uh, always happy when the show surprises me, which is something it pretty consistently does. It, it is cool to see everyone like back on the station and catching up. Uh, Cisco and Jake together. Uh, Nog is, he is telling his dad, "Look, they made me an ensign. I'm an officer now." All, all of that, Ex except for with Garrick. He, you know, he goes to sick bay and sees dead Zial, and and Kira tells him something mm. like, uh, "You know, like she loved you or something." And and then and I loved Garrick's reaction of like, you know, I don't know why, where he's like very. He he does seem sad, you know, that she's gone, but he's also like confused, mm -hmm. like you know, why would you ever love someone like me, like, mm -hmm. which I I've always yeah. 
interpreted that not not always, but you know, since we now know that Andy Robinson was playing Garrick as a queer character, I've kind of always assumed like part of that is like, like first of all, like I'm not even into girls. Why why were you crushing on me so hard? He he he's, he's he hates himself. We know yes. this. He's done from terrible many, things. Many scenes. He's many sequences. Yeah. yeah. The scene in this in the end where there's everybody is getting to reunite. Uh, I was surprised that I got teary eyed to see Jadzia and and Worf reunited because although I always liked them fine. I, I did like kind of really I wasn't fully buying into it, maybe, or maybe I just wasn't attached to them as a couple until I saw them reunited. There's something about that. And then I was like, OK, enough time has passed that now now that I've I've seen them in sort of like enough situations that I liked them as a couple. And and it was really sweet seeing uh, seeing them get their moment. The last thing I have to say on this episode, another cool Martok moment, I think, is, you know, they had the bet on uh, whoever steps <laughs> foot on the station first will have to get the other uh, a barrel of blood wine and yep. and cisco does from like an episode or two back yes and cisco does get on before martok i think when the rotaran got here i th i think martok was like hold up we this needs to be cisco's victory let him let him set foot on the promenade first and and the reason why i think that's because there's a later episode where they make like another bet and i was like oh i see what you're doing martok you gave him that one so that you can you can get this other bet but we'll we'll get to that at, at some other point interesting okay all right but uh yeah uh but speaking of of klingons and Worf and jebzia and martok we have a klingon wedding episode to talk about which this, yeah. is, this is a fun one uh because I, d I don't know if you're going to like this, hate this, or be somewhere in between, but I'm just going to read the uh, the doobly-doo stuff that I read. Uh, you This is episode season six, episode seven. You are cordially invited, written by Ronald D. Moore, directed by David Livingston. The matriarch of the House of Martok challenges Worf and Dax's marriage. Uh, Dave, what do you think? I, I, in some ways, it's my least favorite episode of these nine but that, that, we, that we've just watched. But I also couldn't deny many good scenes in it. Uh, like, oh, man, I, I loved when, like, O'Brien and, and Bashir are hanging, I think. Or was it was it Bashir? Kill Worf. Yes. Yeah. yeah the, 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 it's basically the brutal Klingon bachelor party stuff. And he's like, he's like, I've ha I have had a vision, you know, which is, of course, what this is supposed to inspire. And he's like, I'm going to, to kill Worf. <laughs> it's, man, it was so funny, uh, and I actually love the ending of the episode. I think the last five minutes are fantastic. So mm. they brought me, they brought me around on it. What I did not like about the episode was I didn't like Dax having to rein in who she was for the matriarch of the Martok family. Yeah, I, I think I think that's kind of a bad message. Like, uh, you know, sometimes yeah. in a relationship, one person just has to give up everything they want to make the other one happy, and it's like, well, there shouldn't like compromise factor in there. That 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 is something I wish they had done different it is a little unique in their case because dax has lived for centuries has had many marriages so it is kind of like yeah like let Worf have this one but right the scene where she and kira are talking early on is uh is, is a good scene and i love by the way that opening where you get to see cisco actually beam a little bit with like just oh, being yeah. back where he was the flags and... coming down on the promenade and ev yeah. everyone being you know more happy we needed this after the last six episodes we really needed yeah. this and Kirov recognizes how happy he is, and you know, mm. it was um, it's a good example of like you know how they can uh, stage things on Deep Space Nine, where you can have like a wartime season, but you can have these these moments of calm and even happiness in it. 
but yeah, I like Dax uh, at some point, uh, or she she tells Kira she's like uh, exactly why she's doing it. She's like the the wedding itself doesn't have a lot of meaning for her, and so she's kind of willing to let it be Worf's thing. It was her idea to do it on the station because you know Alexander is about to get shipped off, so right. we should do it here where your where your son can be your best man. Doesn't Quark just jump in and say he's like just do it on the station or whatever? He, he you had know. been trying to sell them on the doing it. In, in, at his bar for a while um you know right. I'm, I'm sure he made a pretty penny you know catering and everything right it, it is a very extravagant wedding after all so dax and, and the presence of alexander and her pitch for that doing it before his son leaves son who he's only now finally starting to make some connections with yeah. but is still clearly a little bit of the doofus i i wish that we could have got like alexander and jake and nog like hanging like like hey you're mm. like Quark's nephew and your Cisco's son and I'm Worf's son and you know we're yeah that would have been that would have been a cool putting together of characters I'm I'm sad to say I'm sad to inform you that like right here like right after like they figured out what to do with Alexander and he's that's it he's interesting this is the last we ever see of him I I think that they probably were like they wanted to address it they were like this is just too big a thing to not address but like once it's done let's We've got more important fish to fry. Yeah, we we have uh, so many recurring characters on this show, but I I feel yeah. like there is potential there. Uh, who knows? Maybe he shows up in Picard season three. I don't know. I'm sure he'll be recast yet again, but it could happen. You know, uh, and the one where they were down on that uh, was it on Risa? Was it where they were having? Uh, they were vacationing, like yeah. Worf and Dax and them. You know, I was really kind of annoyed at Worf's, you know, like his conservative views coming out on that one. I appreciated uh, to uh, in this one that when, is it Sorella, Martok's wife? Yes, and I love her. When she comes to the station, uh, Martok's saying, yeah, she doesn't really like outsiders coming in and polluting our pure Klingon heritage or whatever. Wor- Worf just straight up says he's like, that's xenophobic. Yeah, that, that is an like, outdated and xenophobic belief. Yeah, that was the Starfleet yeah. in him showing yeah so. that's a good job Worf. that is something you should have taken yeah, from good Starfleet. good that there's there's seven years on the enterprise like something to sink in uh <laughs> sir, let's talk about like sorella's like introduction when she steps out of the the docking ring and and just she is just laying into martok so hard like uh oh you you've gotten even more fat oh you're I, i'm surprised you're even still alive <laughs> and just martok the way that he's just like rolling with it just like zinger after zinger with like yes my deterioration is proceeding on schedule but i i will try to die uh, uh hopefully soon you know it's just... uh, yeah it seems like it's clearly part of their relationship yeah i don't know if that is particularly healthy i did when i was thinking for the first time the other uh, like a few episodes back when dax was joking about how she wasn't you know gonna like uh e- even like want to uh apply to the house of martok or whatever and Worf gets all worked up and then she She's like smiling and she's like, I'm just kidding. Um, I was like, I feel like uh, in uh, what would they call it? In BDSM circles, she would be a brat. (laughs) <laughs> the uh the submissive that pokes at the uh dom. Uh yeah, and I was totally like is. this seems like this might this is a recurring sort of thing. Uh and and I feel like uh th- this is this is sort of the 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 BDSM side of the Klingon we, relationship we know that, here. We know that Worf is into, you know, really rough sex. That's that's a thing. That's in canon, that's well established. So yeah, <laughs> right. I, I think that's that's how they play. But yep. there's a lot of fun stuff with like their two different versions of like their bachelor parties, you know, like I feel like, you know, Dax had the the, the more fun party, but I, I kind of like the uh, the Worf stuff, too. I thought that was uh, it was funny. And it's like, you know, like when when Martok and Worf, they're kind of like teasing everyone else. They're like, I don't know if you non Klingons can keep up with us, but they're like singing like the fireside when they're singing the Klingon war songs and stuff like that was fun for me. I I, I love the, the Klingon shit like that. Well, because they had done those episodes where the Klingons 
singing on the Rotaran was such a big thing, and I got chills watching it. It meant more now. But there was also a lot of funny stuff when they're like, what are the other five trials? Blood, pain, sacrifice, oh, anguish, yeah. and death. <laughs> yeah. Which which did lead to Bashir saying like uh, something kind of trashy. He's like, yep, that sounds like marriage. And I was like, all right, Bashir. <laughs> they're like the back and forth, like the wedding's off, the wedding's on. They had like all that food. They had like that huge spread at Quarks and, and uh, like yep. the, the moment of uh, like there uh, none of that for those on the path to Kalhaya. Uh, and then Quark is like no refunds either. <laughs> Someone mentioned uh, in the uh, comments Nog's dance. And that was uh, that yes. was one of the highlights for me. <laughs> that was created by Aaron Eisenberg himself. And that was David Livingston, oh, the man. director. You know, he did something like you normally don't do. But like the way that they shot this, he was like. Let's have, like, real music, real people actually playing the drums, real uh, Polynesian guy spinning the fire shit around, like, all that stuff. Like, people just, like, talk, dance, you know, like, joke around and stuff. He's just like, Aaron, just, like, do something, like, do, dance, like a Ferengi would dance or something. And and this is what he came up with. And and <laughs> David Livingston, I actually, I, I, I got to meet him in, in Vegas and talk to him, too. Uh, he's a cool dude. He's directed more episodes of Star Trek than anyone else ever. But, yeah, I thought it was, I thought that was, like, a, a, a really, really genius way of shooting this, which they rarely do in, in television or movies and stuff and it, it paid off i thought i agree and i feel like uh, that felt like a ferengi dance the the two scenes at the end though of, of you know like martok has like the talk with with Worf about how you know we don't get to pick like the ones that we love and you clearly love dredzia you'd be foolish to back out of this now and then cisco talking to dredzia which we agree it is a little messed up where he's just like just suck it up old man just like let Worf have his way it is kind of messed up but i love that like that chemistry and the like the the shot of dredzia like resting on cisco and like hugging him and embracing him just like whatever happened you know that like, young ensign who had hair who like turned to me for advice and just it's, it's one of my favorite mm -hmm. moments in all of in all of ds9 Especially yeah, it's you know stuff that happens later. <laughs> those actors can sell it. It's a great visual. And then the uh, the ceremony itself, I like that you know it references like the Klingon, uh, the early Klingons who slayed the gods who created them. Uh, the the ending when you know the the cool thing about you know being the the bat going into the bachelor party and getting tortured is you get to you get to have your revenge on the happy couple. You get to beat them up with those. Those sticks, the the uh, what are they called? Masakas? B Bashir, Bashir being like like now and like like Martok being like wait doctor, wait doctor, and then he's like now and then like the, like the cut to black is like you're hearing them like hit Worf and Jedzia. It's a little cheesy, like but I, I said, love it. That was actually that's that that actually sold me on the episode. Although I also did like the the sort of formal ceremony and and could appreciate uh, Cirilla. Uh, you know, and Dax kind of bonding, even if I knew it was a little bit of a dated thing that led to that little story story point. But uh, yeah, I love the ending to it. <laughs> well, uh, the next episode we're going to talk about uh, Resurrection. I've actually we've actually talked about it before back in 2018. We talked about all the Mirror Universe episodes of DS9 uh, back when we were talking about a bunch of Mirror Universe stuff. Uh, so people can go check that out for more. For more details, uh, Dave, you probably have like a different perspective on it now, especially like now that you know who Vedic Burial is, because he's the guy who like comes back in this. Uh, I'm not gonna have For a sure. ton to say. Just let me uh, set this one up. But yeah, this is episode eight, Resurrection, written by Michael Taylor, directed by Lavar Burton. An alternate version of Vedic Burial arrives from the mirror universe, seeking refuge. When we talked about it before, we thought it was like the least interesting of the DS9 Mirror Universe episodes. Uh, I still stand by that. In fact, this is this is the weak link for me out of these nine episodes we're discussing now. It's and it's mm. probably my third. Yeah, it's my third least favorite of season six. I love season six. It's probably my favorite season of of any Star Trek show ever. Mm -hmm. But there's there's three episodes in here that I can. I'm just kind of like meh on, or there, one that I actually like actually genuinely dislike. 
Um, but yeah, this is this is one of those three. But I don't I don't know. What about you? You know, I liked it pretty solidly. I think you know roughly on the same level as the wedding episode, which is a sort of mixed episode. I I do like the Deep Space Nine or the, the Mirror Universe stuff in DS Nine. So I liked seeing the Intendant back. I think that like as a plot, it's not a bad one. But it's arguably ground they've covered where with Cisco and Mirror Universe Jennifer and that that sort of weird thing where it's like, oh, what would it be like? I, I did really like the scene where Cisco talks to Kira about the appearance of somebody who looks like her ex but they know is from the mirror universe and he's like i know exactly what it is it's like you look at them and they're not the same person but sometimes the light will catch them in such a way or they'll put on an expression and you kind of feel like maybe they are that person or could be that person and so i really like that that idea behind it and i like the actor who plays uh Burial. uh i think he does a good job uh, playing a kind of a sleazy version of himself, yeah. very much a Han Solo kind of guy, you know, a uh, jaded guy with a, a little bit of a heart of gold by the end of it. I almost wish they had refocused a little bit more on the, the what what seemed like an interesting moral question early on, which is, oh, what would you, c- you know, can you accept refugees from the mirror universe? You know, what, what mm. would that entail? Um, but that wasn't that wasn't the story they were telling. Um, but it, like the intended's plan to like steal a religious artifact from the prime universe and use it to be kind of a messiah type figure on the Bajor of, of her world. Yeah. That's a solid plan. Yeah, if you recall, <laughs> the last time we saw her way back in season four, she was kind of on the outs in the in the Alliance. Uh, Regent Worf, he's this oh, right. high, high-ranking dude in the Alliance. He, he's mad at her, and, and uh, she's kind of on the run from from the Alliance. So, yeah, she kind of wanted Bajor to, to break off, be an independent thing under her command. Uh, the the notable thing for me, I guess, you know, a lot of people like complain about Burial and say he's like boring and stuff. I think there are moments when he's really interesting. I think when he uh, <laughs> that episode where he he he's under the influence of Luoxana and he's he's uh, uh, getting uh, getting flirty and uh, uh, who who is he? I think he's hitting on Dax is the one he was going after. Mm. I, th- I think you know he's good at like the comedic stuff and I, I do like his performance here quite a bit. It all I've seen this episode so many times. But it always stings, kind of like the reveal at the end. Like whenever he's like talking to Kira, like in bed, or like you know describing his his life growing up in the mirror universe, it always comes off as so genuine. And I'm sure there's a lot of truth baked into that. But I I, right. I, I know I know the, the reveal. I don't forget it when I'm watching it. I remember that. But it's still it always has like a bit of an impact. So as as much as I I don't like this episode compared to the rest of season six, I I I do appreciate uh that part of it quite a bit. I think that's impressive that it always has that effect on me. You know what I'll say is I think that um I agree and to the point that it's it's almost too bad that this is one of those cases where I think there's not quite an organic follow through on the show. This is the kind of thing that would I think affect you for a good while. Like somebody you were like that was like one of the big loves of your life returns is revealed to be a traitor and leaves uh and and like manipulated you and all this. Uh, and and could very well be dead in the mirror universe, or but maybe not. You don't know. That's something that would leave a mark on you. And I kind of wish that there was a little bit of follow up in the next few episodes. But I like you, when you have that conversation with Quark, and he's he's like, oh, what if we set up like the scam where you know you dress up as Burial and and all this. I don't know if I, I'm sure Quark was probably open to that because he has such a uh, such a sleazy Hustler. capitalist. But yeah, I think he was also trying to figure this dude out. And he had an idea, you know, you kind of see him like eyeing the, the Bajoran temple, making plans to steal the ore. He rats him out. <laughs> he rats him out. But I think he was doing this kind of confirm, you know, is this guy really like that big of a scumbag? And even though that Burial doesn't go along with it, Quark still says, oh, I can see like the guilt behind your eye. Yeah, you say you hate people like me because, you know, you're a scumbag too. And you hate yourself. That's why. I, th- I think he was, he was trying to, you know, to 
to get confirmation on that before he went to Kira. Yeah, this this is the slightly nobler Quark uh, of the of the current moment. Yeah, the earlier earlier seasons of DS9 Quark would have. He would have asked for something in return. Right. Or the deal would have been all he cared about. Like the, <laughs> yeah, I want him to become, I want to be his partner in crime. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I don't have too much else. I guess the, him stealing the, the Mechleth under, from, from Worf. I thought that was kind of cool at the dinner party with, uh, oh, yeah. Jadzia <laughs> and Worf. And I guess we get to see like married couple Jadzia and Worf, you know, doing things like inviting other couples over. Oh, and I guess like the Odo Kira stuff of Odo and Kira avoiding each other. They finally sort of break that ground. I sort of almost would have liked to have seen seen that as a somewhat more serious mm. conversation well, yeah that wasn't that was in the previous episode where they like that talk in the bathroom at, at dax's quarters yeah but so I'm, i you know of course they, they needed to cover that and maybe I, I don't know that there was a lot of great you know dialogue and insight to be had but it does seem like the the cura that said we're well past sorry i kind of wanted to see what how, how exactly what it was he you said wanted to, to see the conversation and so that I, I always thought it was like kind of tasteful how did they how, remend yeah I, I, I kind of appreciate just like it all happened off screen and they just talked like all night through and they talked their way through it. And like we didn't see it because we can't see this, you know, nine hour long conversation or, or whatever. But I, I also understand, yeah, it would have been cool to actually like have that play out on screen. The show usually does show those conversations, right, usually right. does show those moments. So like, yeah, I can't begrudge them occasionally saying like this one just happens to have happened off screen. You kind of knew where it was headed. So let's accept that, of course, these characters can forgive each other. Yeah. Oh, and, and uh, it, it is cool seeing like Nana visitors as the intendant and Kira when they're both wearing like the same wardrobe. Cause you really do. Like, yeah. you, you can immediately tell who is who. And so that's a, yeah. that's good. Acting. She had the walk. She had the sexy walk. Yeah. And uh, she treats uh, the world like she's Caligula's. So. Yeah. That's the, that's the last of mirror burial. So who, I don't know if the intendant kills him or what happens, but uh, we, we never find out. So you have to use I'll your write imagination. That book one day. Uh, the, the last episode we're going to talk about tonight is Statistical Probabilities, teleplay by Rene Echeverria, story by Palm Pietroforte, directed by Anson Williams. Bashir helps a group of eccentric fellow genetically engineered humans try to make a useful contribution to the Federation. The Dominion offers to sign a truce with the Federation. So uh, the Augments have gotten a lot of uh, talk and screen time and exploration and strange new worlds and prodigy lately but here's deep space nine doing it back in the 90s of you know these augments mm-hmm. trying to escape the shadow of khan and the eugenics wars uh but they didn't call them augments they called them in a much more serious way than i expected I, d- I don't i don't like them being called mutants it's it seems like it would be derogatory but you yeah. know i guess that's years of x-men so i i actually when this episode started i was very worried for a few minutes because um, of jack no, because it was directed by Potsy from Happy Days. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was, though. Uh, but because, yes, I thought they were going to, like, the, the essentially they're framing these augments as, you know, people dealing with mental illness. That's the fr- sort of the, the vibe yeah. of it. And I was like, oh, they're all kind of like caricatures. They're very over the top. And, and you know, that's that's true. That That is true. Um, but I found them, their, their treatment of them, uh, pretty appealing. And I found the characters appealing, uh, even if it does veer a little bit into that Rain Man type type thing where it's like oh they become cool because they're useful they're mm. savants um and i sort of was very aware of that 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 sort of approach to it but i instead of doing the i thought the episode was going to be all about oh can he make a breakthrough and talk to him uh there was that was happening in movies like rain man and awakenings with robin williams and stuff like that and i kind of thought this would be their own take on it and instead that actually happens quite early on and it's more just kind of how things evolve from that and uh, and and i actually did end up liking jack and those other characters i found them all pretty pretty endearing even if i know it's not uh it's it's like kind of rooted in somewhat over the top (laughs) 
tropes. Yeah. I've heard some people, you know, be critical of this episode thinking like it seems weird that the Federation would have these people locked up, but like they're not they're not imprisoned. They're like in a uh you know, like a, an institute, a a uh, a hospital type scenario. Three of these four people, I'm convinced probably can't be independent, you know, citizens li- functional in society living on their own with uh with Jack who's he's the violent one. Sometimes he like cuts people's hands and threatens to, you know, blow people out airlocks and stuff. Uh, uh Patrick is uh, I guess simple minded, I guess, uh, you know, very childlike. Serena is like the catatonic one. You know, she's very like I would think non-functional be left to her own. Mm. I don't understand why Lauren has to be hospitalized. She was just like real flirty. She wanted to flirt with all the boys and probably wants to do more than flirt. But uh, like she, yeah. she seems like a fairly functional person. I don't, I don't know. There could be like other sides to her that we don't. If see. If she but... was like, uh, if 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 she's meant to like be a little bit like somebody with uh, borderline personality disorder or something mm. like that, where she's like hyper impulsive, and you know that's always essentially getting her into trouble. But but yeah, she seems more like she would be able to function potentially she seems almost exclusively devoted to her flirtatiousness though when she's not analyzing with them so (laughs) maybe that's the problem uh in that little like dinner party or whatever where Bashir is telling the rest of the main characters about these uh people he's dealing with you kind of have people talk about you know their opinions on uh, how to deal with i'm just gonna call them augments because that's what the rest of star trek will, will adopt but it's the yeah uh but Worf is very like tng Worf, where he's kind of like the dude with like the asshole opinion he's like uh well you know they they shouldn't be completely free we need we need to keep an eye on you know you let, let some of the good ones uh you know have 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 jobs and stuff but you know yeah. obviously they shouldn't be allowed to compete freely and you know Bashir has to be like well what about me you feel that way about me and stuff he's like no you're one of the good ones <laughs> i did like when they're able to you know analyze damar's speech and it, it is i guess a little goofy how they're like oh wayun is the dark knight and zial's the slayed princess and all this stuff but uh, when they're actually like the the little details when they're like oh no like play back this hologram Wayun like what he said in the actual Dominion ease not the translation and oh look this that just, was a cool bit yeah it was that very was a cool, cool idea Jeffrey Combs said that was a a bitch to to do just like shooting that having to having to play the scene in English and then having to match that and speak this made up Ghibli gook that doesn't mean anything to him but still having to have yeah. like, the same like inflections and stuff so that was like one of the hardest things he's done I believe yeah and that that scene was cool in general because of the way it was like interactive acting with a holodeck yeah you know csi kind of thing where you're like almost like like replay that scene or it's like the scene in blade runner with the photograph and the esper machine you know it's essentially an evidentiary use of the holodeck that was just a cool use of it <laughs> fathery where they have the party hats on if you were to just show that one panel somebody would be like this looks like the goofiest episode of star trek ever <laughs> well you know we, i was talking to our, our friend uh, aaron aka geek filter the other day and he was saying like you know people that say deep space nine is too dark for star trek like are you not paying attention to all the goofy shit that in there it's not a dark show it has some dark moments but there's there's a lot of like lightheartedness throughout the entire sure. seven seasons its ethos is more serious and is, is is more likely to call out hypocrisy and 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 let tragedy kind of sink in uh that rather than be like a something that occurs in five minutes and then you're done with but but yeah like throughout the whole thing they they have lots of trek mm-hmm. silliness fun flirtatiousness you know a lot of the things that have made that are part of trek Trek's lighter side. Yeah. And before we had a Star Trek show that is a dedicated comedy, I, I said for years, yeah, the, the two Star Trek shows that did comedy the best were the original series and DS9. And DS9 got sure. to do more comedy because it had more seasons. So I, for a long time, I considered DS9 the funniest Star Trek show. Uh, yeah, for sure. Other than like TOS, it's the one that, that has made me laugh out loud the most. Yeah, they could they could pull it off. But 
you we, we get a classic Trek moral quandary here. And a, and a lot of like, the you know, DS9, it is, you know, balancing like, you know, what do you do here? Do you shoot these Jim Hadar and, uh, you know, side with Keevan, even though he's a jerk? It, you know, here we get like a, another one of those uh, like, oh, do we do we end the war? Do we surrender? Because it'll save 900 billion lives. Uh, yeah, the numbers they were talking about were insane. Yeah, the, the world population just hit 8 billion. So imagine like 100 Earths. That's only 800 billion. You're still shy of like nine. It's, it's unfathomable, like that many deaths, that many that many yeah. funerals, that, that many lives ending. And in that sense, you can see how they're like, they're very much like the Paul Atreides prescience in Dune. Yeah. Their their foresight, you can be like, oh, well, we took them seriously on one thing, and it was clearly good advice. Which, by the way, I thought that was that was a whole cool idea of the concessions that gets them a planet where they can make Ketracel white. Mm-hmm. Very very like neat idea there. But uh, yeah, it's like, well, do we take them seriously when it comes to something as huge as surrendering all? of the you know federation to in order to save those lives it just that is a real test and you could arguably do both more serious sci-fi around it or more stories from star trek had they wanted to yeah and i don't know like do i agree with bashir like you know these are the numbers we need to accept reality do i agree with cisco like you can't ask the entire alpha quadrant to lay down and surrender like you know we have the right to go down fighting if if that's who we right. are uh, I, like i don't i don't know who i but agree like with. sort of ask but but it's like those are that that's that's the military leaders who's saying we have the right it's always like you know it's like oh do those soldiers get any right do their families do the the other you know all the innocents that are yeah. killed have the right to go down fighting do they want that right yeah like, um, like what this would, wasn't what an episode to ex- this wasn't an episode to examine it from every angle like that but yeah, they, they, I, they I bring it up they, they do the trek thing of like we're going to ask questions and we're not going to give you mm-hmm. the answer you this is something to think about. It's just kind of a thought. Yeah, experiment. it's not something that I expected the episode to do when I was ten minutes into it. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I was faced with this. Even if I was just like a civilian living in the Alpha Quadrant, yeah, do I want to like live under the oppression of this fascist dictatorship and hope that like one of my descendants centuries from now will have a successful revolution, or do I want to say like like no, like fuck these bastards? Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go down fighting them. Like I, I mean, I don't I don't know. Like I, I see the advantages of of both those outlooks and you know the convenient wrap-up that we get just to have a conclusion to the story they're telling is that like oh well you know these these projections don't seem to know everything right and, and i think that, that that actually works pretty nicely as a, for story purposes i could have sworn by the way that the nonverbal augment was going to have the moment where she speaks and breaks the you know breaks the silence and says that was really originally wise. planned but they, i guess they thought it'd be cooler to uh, not do that i'm glad they didn't because i was so sure that it was going to happen which means i was aware of the truth of uh, oh well when this person who can't talk talks it's always must be me- so deep and meaningful yeah they, um, I, I like the way that they, they gave her like the one meaningful thing of i mean i guess she does like give them some some math at one point on that pad but but here like when she she frees bashir so that he can stop uh the the rest of them from turning over the the classified documents to the to Wayun and Damar. I'm I'm laughing because I just remembered uh, when Odo goes to uh, round up Wayun and Damar, and and Wayun's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, we seem to have gotten lost." Odo's like, "They're not coming." <laughs> or like when he walks, when he's like, "Let me guess. I bless you. I grace you with my presence." <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was it was fun Odo stuff. Yeah, and it was fun to see Wayun and um uh, like flat footed like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little lighthearted. We, we we get more development with Damar here. You know, they, they pick up on it, uh, but they're like, oh, yeah, this guy, he feels guilty. He feels guilty for shooting that girl. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, and that's interesting. That's a side I had, hadn't quite expected to see of him. But I bet from the comments, I have inferred that Demar has still more facets to show me. Yes, yes, we will see. Uh, there might not be more Alexander, but there there will be more Demar. There there will be more War. There's a lot of good stuff coming up. I'm. Uh, I, had a, I had a great time talking about these episodes with you, Dave. I don't know if there's anything else that uh, you need to say before we uh, sign uh, off. I only wanted to mention uh, that uh, Jack's particular sort of stammering manner of talking uh, was effective enough that I kind of found myself wanting to talk like that. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you, you, you want to talk like Jack? You want to talk like really fast? Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> It's uh, it's almost like it was like a comedy, a slightly a slight comedy bit, and that was his affectation. And I was like, oh yeah, like I'm gonna tell his jokes afterwards, and of course I'm gonna do the bit. That <laughs> actor originally auditioned to play Bashir. He he lost to Sadig, wow. but obviously it's but, interesting. Uh, I I could uh, there's I could see it. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I can see him uh-huh. be like this this young genius doctor. He could he could probably pull that off. Um, mm-hmm. I, but I like him as Jack, so it all worked out. I think that was probably the the role for for him and Bashir's for the sure. role for Sadig. But... For sure. This actually ended up being an episode where like I don't know that it's objectively a, a great episode, but like uh, I liked it a lot more than I expected it to, and I found all the the augments very endearing. I think so. I think it's an episode. It's easy for a lot of people to dismiss, but it's also easy for a lot of people to be like, oh yeah, there's actually something going on here. So. Mm-hmm. It just it just depends. And I was happy to see that they addressed the the augment issue at all, um, and and then pretty seriously. Yeah, and uh, there's uh, there there's more augment stuff in the the episodes to come before we hit the the end of the show. So, right on. But yeah, that'll be it for this week. But there's still a a lot more deep, deep space nine. We're we're closing in on the end, but there's still a, there's still a lot to cover. We have uh, nine more episodes to talk about next week. That's gonna be everything from season six, episode ten, the magnificent Ferengi all the way through season six, episode 18, Inquisition. There's some stuff I am just dying to to talk about with y'all next week. So that'll, and, and I also want to ask Dave, because uh, I, I have no idea how he's going to react to some of this stuff. So Seems like it's all pretty big at this point. Yeah, so uh, the, the war rages on, and uh, there's uh, a, lot of, a lot of neat things going on in these next few episodes. So we will be back next week live Friday at 7 p.m. Central. You can listen to the show wherever you get your podcast. And until then... As always, live long and prosper, y'all. Listen to the Text Trek podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at text-trek.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash text-trek. And follow Fathery on Twitter at txtrek. Please support us by liking our videos and subscribing to our channel on YouTube. Thank you and take care.